1: What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash. And as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you doing? You know what?
2: I'm with my favorite girl.
1: Oh, come on now. Could not be could not be
2: more jazzed to be here.
1: Is where I am equally as jazzed because A, Ditto, here with my best gal. Uh, and then also because this is episode 50. And that's a milestone. It is. It's, uh,
2: I mean, I, for some reason, I didn't do the math. Uh, And so when we started this, I did not anticipate 50 happening uh, as quickly as it did. Again, it's simple math, but (laughs) nobody has time for simple math no um Um, but yeah it's uh, 50 i mean somehow it's both like oh my god 50 already but also wasn't 58 years ago like it's somewhere somehow
1: it's both of those things for me yeah oh it's yes for me too i was like 50 only 50 (laughs) But fifty is a lot. I mean, that is a that is it a is. huge accomplishment. Um, so first of all, cheers to that. What you drinking yeah. over there? Currently, I just have a water. But
2: I'm listening. Um, I've sent my husband is supposed to be running an errand, and I was okay. like, we're gonna be gone, uh, or I'm probably gonna be started by the time you're gone. Um. I said I it was specifically like an or are you going to do this tonight and he went oh I don't know probably not and I went okay but if you do if you want to like bring me back a drink and he's like so I should go and I went I'm not saying go I'm just saying should you if go If you did yeah I get um that. so I'm uh I I'm I'm bracing for the moment that he might burst in to to, to deliver the drink And if not by our break, I'll just go get one.
1: (laughs) Of course. I'll just get one myself. So, Of course. That's that's where I'm at. Listen, I'm knee deep in the white wine. I'm in the Matua, which is a Mm -hmm. risky move because I do have some things that I'm going to talk about off the top of this episode. And again, when I have one sip of alcohol, I turn into a blubbering... Uh, unable to read mess, so we're going to see what happens. Um, But listen, you know, I think it's very important to mark occasions. I think it's very important to celebrate things. And I am so jazzed that it's been 50 episodes. Now, I know I feel Mm. like you, I have not had time to really reflect. (laughs) And I should have, I should have, I should have taken a moment Mm -hmm. and gone back through and read all of the titles to myself, and and gone. <laughs> oh, what happened then? Um, that was fun. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but I'm guessing, and this is because I I know you as well as I do. I'm guessing you probably did. I maybe looked over them, uh,
2: uh-huh. and then I uh-huh. went back through. I watched a couple of old promos, of and course. I watched our uh, season one highlight reel. Uh-huh. Um, that I forgot. All of like i was watching it and i was like no way uh f- just for example uh episode 14 the hoot nanny
1: i got so drunk that partway through yeah. i took my pants off you did <laughs> you did it was again one of those very <laughs> few times that you were drunker <laughs> than me which is very rare in life for me to be the least drunk in the room yeah. um which again it's always a treat but yeah you were you were on fire oh fire. i
2: I, I just, I don't know what was going on there. I mean, I was looking back and I, I had forgotten, like, I remember um, we got our scumbag. Of course. But I forgot that came right out the gate episode one. And the fact that episode one, we were like, we're going to come into this and let people know we love Speed.
1: And that set a tone that I don't think either of us realized would continue 50 episodes later. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's where we're at.
2: I mean, I had already forgotten uh, Dirty Slurpee. Yeah. From episode three. Charm City Helicopters. I had totally forgotten that that was even a thing Yes. Uh, That we harped on for as long as we did. Pajama Pants Bailiff, of course, from episode eight. Uh, Episode nine is where you came up with the, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't reminisce about this.
1: It's about us when we were little kids. Yeah.
2: I mean, it was nice to like look back and be like that, like episode 11, that's when jazzed came in because that was the episode I started watching Hallmark Christmas movies. <laughs>
1: oh, of course. <laughs> and and that's... we're getting back to that time now. Yeah. Oh, I... No wonder we're close to a year, Mark, because we're yeah. getting back to that uh, that time of year. I
2: personally can't wait um, because yeah. I I want nothing more than to just see the kids off to school, close the door behind them, yeah, and get in that bed And turn on some Hallmark Christmas movies. That's what I want more than anything. So I'm very much looking forward to it. Oh, I have not even looked into if lists have come out yet. I mean, it's early
1: September, so maybe I'm not too late. In getting it started. I, I, I'm <laughs> going to go out on a limb and say you're not too late to get started on that. No.
2: No, but I truly feel like this episode's going to release and then an hour later I'm going to get a ding and it'll be an email from your mother being like, this is the list I have
1: already. <laughs> See, what I love again is that Christy and my mother, uh, shout out to Mother Laurel, yeah. uh, are very similar in many ways. And one of them is that they both keep a list of all of the Hallmark Christmas movies they've seen, correct? Yes. And uh, what I love is that, again, in comparison, and I don't know what episode I referenced this in before, but I'm a flipperty gibbet, a will of a (laughs) wisp, a a clown. clown. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Yeah, I try so hard to have lists. I try so hard and they just don't. And then it's a list about eight things. You know, it just doesn't. My operating system works differently. That's all it is. That's
2: Look, all it, is. it could be... Uh, lists aren't always positive. Sure. I mean, I caught myself the other day. Uh, we had gone for groceries. And I was like, okay, so these are all the things I need to do um, for the remainder of my day. And every time we would essentially check one off the list, I would have to then out loud... Read off the rest of the list, it wasn't necessary, but my brain thinks it's necessary to make sure I know where I'm at on the list. Um, which is just it's a lot. Lists can be great, but lists can be exhausting. It's just it's a lot. Um, I feel it, but look, I will say, um, looking back at some of the old stuff, I was reminded of. Just all of the personalities of mine that came out, <laughs> yeah, like of I Blanche. Well, episode seven, we met Brandy doot, doot. I had almost forgotten about brandy because it's been so long since I've had brandy, and I was yeah. gonna do it for today, for the fiftieth, and then I was like, well, maybe I'll save it for another like month for our one year anniversary.
1: That's nice. That I would feels... like Brandy to be in attendance. I'd
2: like to send her an invite. Well, I guarantee Blanche is going to be there, so we may as well have Brandy. And then yeah. we'll see what we're talking about. and Maybe cookies will show up. Who knows? I It'll it. It'll be a full house with just the two of us. Um, episode eight was Blanche. She arrived uh, during Death Row Fugitive because that's when we talked about which uh, golden girl we would be. Mm. Um, episode 10, Tsunami Spirits, was Christy the Science Nerd. Wow. I know, right? And then, of course, episode 31, uh, the Staircase Basement Christy introduced us to side notes. <laughs> it was the Staircase episode. Okay. That's what we, that's, it started with a fun fact. Ah. And then the next episode, I researched I meant to do fun fact, but I couldn't remember that that's what I called them. So then I called it a side note. And then I was like, fuck, I should have. I meant to call it a fun fact because I meant to keep it going. And then it ended up side note stuck. And that's where that came around. But that's been going on for almost 20 episodes.
1: Well, no wonder that's the number one most requested piece of merch that I get asked for is (laughs) side note stuff. So if it's been going on for 20 episodes, I hear yeah. it. I hear well, what the people are asking for. I get it now. It's, I mean, I almost
2: don't remember a time without them.
1: I don't remember a time before side notes. I agree.
2: Um, but I mean, I was looking at it. I was like, okay, so we got Brandy. We got Blanche. We got Basement Christy. Um, cookies is new. Cookies is new, but she's welcome. Yeah, cookies, uh, there's room. There's always room. Always, um, Always room at the table. And I mean- uh episode, I think episode 40 um, was Marilyn Monroe, and that was our, our step into time machines and blankets.
1: Now, is that when we referenced going to the first Supper? The last Supper, Jesus, Lauren. <laughs> Not Jesus' first supper. That would have been him suckling at Mary's teat. No, Jesus' last supper. Um It's
2: possible. I don't remember.
1: I'm going to have to look back because we have gotten, and I we would be remiss if we didn't talk about this Yeah, for a quick second. Yeah. I've been, I, th- you made the penny drop. I should have put it on a list. I have <laughs> to figure out what episode it is because that was the episode where we talked about time traveling with warm blankets, of course. That's where that yeah. whole thing started. And we requested fan art. For people to put us yeah. at The Last Supper as though we had time traveled there. Yeah. And one of our tra- one of our um listeners who is absolutely a phenomenal artist, mm-hmm. Courtney, she sent us, and we have not posted this yet. And so I feel like we're gonna have to post it when this episode comes out because the people need to see it. They do. And it is so I mean, every time I look at it, I laugh. I I literally sat down with Spencer the other night, and I was like, "I need you to look at this." But no, you need to look at it with me for a second, and I need to walk you through why this is genius. <laughs> so she sent us this piece of art that she did by hand, and it is us at the Last Supper, oh, can we Christy see that? with a Slurpee in hand. Oh, she's holding it up. That's gorgeous. So if yeah. you're watching along on YouTube, uh, you can see it right away. If not, we will post it on Instagram uh, and I'm also Twitter. Gonna-
2: Come in so we can
1: just... Of course. Like, come now, what's amazing is I'm in the back there holding a glass of, you know, white wine. Christy's yeah. got the Slurpee. We're both in our Peaches Bad Bitch shirts. I'm in shorts and Christy's in Batman pajama pants, which yeah. makes all of the sense. But the detail that got me the most... And we're holding a blanket, obviously. Yeah. The detail that got me the most is that if you really zoom in on what Jesus is looking at on the table, oh, yeah. it it's little printouts about... Serial killers. So there's Ramirez, Bundy, Gacy, Dahmer, Jack the Ripper. It's like The Last Supper was them all pouring over famous yeah. and true crime. I, I just cannot get enough of this piece. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it is true brilliance. It surpassed anything I would have ever expected. Um, and we always get amazing, amazing fan art. Don't get me wrong. Uh, that always tickles me. Brings me so much joy. But we had to give a shout out to Courtney. Uh, and you can follow her on Instagram at Court M underscore art, um, where she also is available for commissions. And her, she is the same artist, if you saw me post. She did an amazing drawing of peaches. And she is just so talented. And so thank you, Courtney, for sending that to us, because it just, <laughs> it just slayed me. It just slayed me. I think um, my
2: favorite detail um is the heat lines coming off of the blanket? We had to know that the blanket was warm. I just I yep. can't. Um and I will say since we're talking about it, um when she sent that to me uh the other day, she had also made my dear sweetie. <gasps> oh god, it's beautiful. I I it is I am beautiful. already like, well, I'm going to need cheddar. I'm going to need my dog, Lucy. Like I've already started listing off all of the next ones that I'm going to have to, uh, get commissioned. Clearly
1: like, uh, she is just so talented. Uh, it is, it is bonkers. Um, Really, honestly. So give her a visit on there. Uh, and thank you again to Courtney because that work was, it, it was obviously also extremely time consuming to do all of that by hand. And so we appreciate the effort and the time um, to give us so much joy because, good God, <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's the best. Our listeners are the best. That's, I'm going to take a quick, yeah. I'm going to take a quick side note. To just say we're so grateful that all of you are still here. We're so grateful if you if you've just found us, um, and that all of these this walk down memory lane may be a mystery to you because you haven't heard these episodes yet. Well, guess what? There's a treasure trove of you to for, to go back and listen to if you're so inclined. Um, and we can't, again, we wouldn't be able to make the podcast if people didn't listen to it. I mean, we could, but it would be a lot less fulfilling because then it would feel, (laughs) you know, like, well, I guess we're just making it in a vacuum for no one but us. Um, but so thank you to everyone who's been with us on the journey, uh, from the beginning, from the middle, uh, from a week ago, uh, from 20 minutes ago when you just found us for the first time. Uh, we appreciate all of you. We're so glad that you're here It has just been such a trip. It hasn't even been a year yet, which is still something that's hard to wrap my brain around. Um, But we're so grateful to all of yous.
2: Oh, thanks. A 100%. I also need to do a personal shout out. Oh. Um, And I'm going to do this because I'm hoping that it will get me out of the doghouse that I have apparently put myself in. Oh, dear. So... This shout-out is going to be to Jessica. Um, She taught my youngest son kindergarten last year. Oh! Um, We never got to really see each other face-to-face because it was COVID last year, of course, and the school was, like, pretty locked down. Like, visitors could not enter the school. So if you had to pick your child up, you had to call the office and the child would be escorted out of the building. You were not allowed in the building. So her and I never really got any face to face. Um, She never saw me picking them up because they take the bus, that kind of thing. Um, So we when I started the year, if there was any sort of like, what do your parents do for a living kind of a thing? um, He would have had no answer because I at the time in like August, September, uh, we hadn't officially even launched yet. So I didn't think of it. Uh, Well, she has a child on one of my other kids' football teams currently, and we saw each other at practice, and she came up and was like, how dare you? You did not tell me that you had a podcast. And I was like, I did not. I did not think to go running out and be like, I just want you to know I do this now. Well, it turns out she loves true crime which I apparently was supposed to know, but I did not. (laughs) So I got a very, I am so angry with you that you didn't tell me because now I have all this catching up to do. Um, And then most recently we were having a conversation and I would say something and then she would just start laughing. And she was like, it's so weird because like you're, I hear your voice all day at home and just to hear it here is just so weird. Uh, and she was like, I just can't believe you didn't tell me and that you took this long to tell me. So, Jessica, I'm telling you now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> if and- we had the time machine uh, capabilities, we could get yes. back. But then we'd potentially create a paradox. So that's also a problem. So. It's
2: It's true. It's true. Yeah. And I bet that's why we couldn't. Because we assume Future Us has already gone back and at least done something. Oh, for sure. I need to believe that. For but sure, for sure. uh I just wanted her to know that is my apology for not telling you when it first started. I was I didn't really I I I don't know. Well listen know. I mean I'm an it awkward is also person.
1: no, I, I, I think it's tough. Like I don't I don't meet people and say, Hi, I'm Lauren. I'm on a television show <laughs> That sounds or, so AA. <laughs> you know, it does sound like that, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, so, you know, these sometimes uh, it feels like it needs to be more organic. Yes. These things come up. But what I like is the spirit of it. Yeah. I like the enthusiasm from Jessica. And I think that yeah. that's awesome.
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, she's lovely. And I, I know she means the uh, she's bad at me um, in not an angry way in any way. Of course. Uh, but of I was course. like, oh, instantly I was like, I've got to make it up to her. I'll shout her out. So Miss over here, who is like, I don't tend to tell people uh, what I do for a living, like unless they specifically ask, um, but we'll <laughs> shout her out. She'll like, <laughs> like, how those are two of, like how those two people are the same person, I'll never know. But that's the beauty. That's that's the magic. That's, that's where I'm at mentally. It's,
1: it's been a week, you know? I do. I do know. <laughs> I do. (sighs) What else? Do you have anything else on that list we want to hit before Um, we move on? I mean, look, I only, I did this.
2: (laughs) I don't know why I did this, but. So we had one episode of Dateline. Yes. Three bonus episodes. We did Halloween, Christmas, and quarantine. Three episodes about serial killers 6 episodes of Lauren Research, 10 episodes about famous cases, 12 episodes of Unsolved Mysteries, and 12 about celebrities. And now that Unsolved Mysteries has said they're coming back in the summer next year. Yeah. We know we've got those we can have on the horizon. Yeah. We're gonna do, like, more serial killers and... Famous people and not so famous people, and I mean, maybe at some point we'll be like, "Here's some true crime, but it's not death."
1: Yeah, because I think it's important. Like when I did the Britney Spears episode, I think it's important to remember that that's a, there is crimes, in yeah. my opinion, that were ha- are happening in that case. Army Hammer is another great example where there was no murders that happened in those. There was no deaths that happened in those. Uh, but I certainly think they fall under the umbrella. Not all true crime has to involve a killing. It's true.
2: Um, I also, at some point, I may be like, hey, let's do like just an unexplained, maybe slightly paranormal. Who knows? We, I mean, my, my point is, even like we've gotten to 50, we still have a ways to go. Oh. The world is our oyster. There's no stopping us now. On that (laughs) note,
1: I'm going to splash some more white wine in this glass before I say...
2: Yeah. To the next 50. Oh. God, now I feel like it's my 50th birthday. It's not.
1: (laughs) Not even close. (laughs) Not even close. Thank you for saying it that way. It's true. It's too true. Well, listen, because also anything goes, season three, no rules, no boundaries, but also boundaries... Um, Yes. We're going to get to the episode, which, of course, we're going to be talking about Kira Coles in this episode, which was our uh, Patreon poll pick. Yeah. If you want to know more about Patreon, go to patreon.com slash Cocktails. We offer bonus episodes, monthly live Q&As that are three hours long and usually quite boozy. <laughs> uh, a lot of fun. Uh, but we do a poll every month where you can vote to help us pick one of the episodes of the podcast for the month. And Kiera Coles is the winner. So we are going to get to that case in a minute. But... Update. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I get tagged in a fair amount of things on the internet. A lot of them get past me truthfully because a lot of people are tagging, which is lovely and I appreciate all of you. But I have been getting tagged in a video on TikTok about a new suspect in the JonBenet Ramsey case. Interesting. So I watched the video I was intrigued. Okay. And I thought, why not look into this? And did I look into it? Of course. (laughs) Of course. Because this is what we do on this show. Um, So listen, just stick with me, dear listeners, if you think that you've gotten ahead of me. Because I'm going to say some names and you're going to be like, oh, I already know about this. But maybe, maybe I found some things. Who knows? Just stick with me because I gotta tell you I dug deep I dug deep into uh, many aspects of of all of this and I'm excited to share it with all of you especially uh, you Christy because we've not shared about this ahead of time Yeah, I can't wait I just always want to impress her oh that's it you always do I I learned it from you (laughs) I learned it from watching you So, the name of this new suspect is Glenn Meyer. Now, if you have followed the Jean Bonnet Ramsey case, then you probably have heard that name before. Again, I ask you, dear listeners, go with me on this ride. It's going to be a wild one, it's a roller coaster. And just trust me. I know. Trust me on this. So basically, this is what the TikTok video said. It said there's a new suspect, Glenn Meyer. He lived in the Ramsey na- the Ramsey's neighbor's basement. The neighbors were, of course, the Barnhills, um, an older couple. Uh, the Barnhills watched the Ramsey's dog when they were out of town. So the belief was that this Glenn Meyer character could have access to the house. There was some sources saying that they could have had a key to the house. Uh, and he would also have had knowledge of them and their, you know, comings and goings and the house. Um, again, I'm just listing what the TikTok told me. Of he course. had a violent past with his ex-wife and children. That his handwriting was apparently very similar to the ransom note. Interesting. That police found a picture in his bedroom of a Navy plane and on the plane was engraved SBTC, just like the ransom note had been signed.
2: Interesting.
1: Later in life, he developed dementia and apparently became obsessed with photos of Jean Benet. uh, And he posted them apparently all over his room that he was living in at the time. Mm. His ex-wife is convinced that he did it. And that was the entirety of the video. So obviously by the end of that video, I was like, I'm going to get into it. Let's (laughs) see what I can find. Of course. That's my girl. So where did I start? I start with this. Who is Glenn Meyer? <laughs> Glenn R. Meyer was born in Indiana, November 5th, 1932. He has no criminal record that I could find. Now, I know that there is some specul, you know, conflicting reports out there that he did have a criminal record. I could not find. And I did background checks. I could not find a criminal record. I'm not saying I'm necessarily right. I'm just going to present what I of could course. find. Or couldn't find. So his ex-wife does say that there was a criminal record. Again, I'm just telling you what I could personally find. So he was a U.S. Army veteran of the Korean War. He lived in California and had two sons while living there in the 1950s with his first wife, Ethel Meyer. It is not known when they divorced, but they did. It's also not known when he moved to Colorado. But he did, and he married a woman named Charlotte Hay on March 22, 1980, he was 48 at the time, and they were separated just over six years later in October 1986, which is 10 years before Jean Bonnet's murder. Right. Glenn Meyer had no children with Charlotte Hay, uh, but she did have children prior to that marriage. He worked as a mortgage lender for the Meyer Mortgage Company in Boulder, Colorado from 1989 to 1999. So he apparently knew the Barnhills through the Methodist church that he went to. He had been attending a weekly men's Bible study group with Joe Barnhill, which was the husband and the couple. And that's how he came to live with them. So he basically like rented a room okay. in their basement, kind of like a border type situation. Right. So at some point after 1999, and I could not again pinpoint a date, he returned to Shelby, Indiana, where he was originally from and moved into a place called Major Manor. Uh, Major Manor is is basically public housing. It's like a low-income housing retirement community. Now, sure. it has been referred to as a shelter for the homeless uh, in many tabloids, but that is not true. It's public housing, and there is a big difference, and I think that it is important to make that differentiation um, because it, it, as I continue on, I just think that that's a relevant sure. point to make. But there is a lot of publications trying to make it seem like he was homeless at that time, when in reality, this was, you know, like government subsidized housing. Again, public housing, low income housing. These are the kinds of names that get thrown around, but not a homeless shelter, as some have made it sound. Sure. There is no uh, judgment about uh, people without housing. That's not what I'm implying. I am just saying that I think it is important to note as we go further talking about him. So. He suffered from dementia later in life and unfortunately did live there until his death in 2005. Unbelievably horrific true crime side note. Yep, that feels right. On June 16, 1996, Glenn Meyer's 38-year-old son, Tom Meyer, was murdered in a homophobic hate crime along with his friend Athos Oliveira. They were (laughs) murdered by a man named Eric Brown while walking down the street in Boston. Meyer and Oliveira had simply been walking down the street when Brown shot each of them at close range with a shotgun. Tom Meyer was openly gay, living in San Francisco at the time, and was in Boston to celebrate a friend's wedding. Police initially suspected that, or sorry, speculated that Meyer and Oliveira may have witnessed a drug deal. However, the killer, Eric Brown, who was arrested after the shotgun casings matched his gun, pled insanity and told a psychiatrist that a voice in his head had told him to murder homosexuals. This was apparently he, again, the claim was that he was schizophrenic and that his delusions were specifically Mm. surrounding uh, homophobic delusions, which is horrifying. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously this was a completely senseless killing, completely devastating uh, to everyone in the families of both Tom Myers and, of course, Athos Oliveira. Um, so the reason why, well, first of all, I'm gonna I'm bringing it up because it's interesting that true crime has touched this person's life in so many ways. But the other thing that I want to remind is that that murder took place in June of 1996, and Jean Benet was murdered Christmas of 1996. So it was within you know six ish months. That these two things happened. So I'm sure that some could argue perhaps Glenn Meyer was in deep mourning of his son. Could that be a motive for a killing? Could he have been pushed over the edge himself in some way and committed some sort of murder? But I could also argue the opposite, which is, isn't it also possible that that's further proof that he didn't commit the murder, that he was in grieving of his son and couldn't imagine Someone else losing their child. Sure. I don't have an answer either way. I just pose it again as what I found. Of course. So he was 64 at the time of jean Bonnet's murder, and he was investigated during the first week of the crime. He was one of the first people investigated as a potential intruder suspect, and he was fully cooperative with the police department. Uh, one of the detectives said he couldn't have been more cooperative. He provided DNA samples, handwriting samples, fingerprints, and his hair. He also took a voluntary polygraph test on January 1st, 1997, which was less than a week after her murder, and he passed it. Nothing had been found to link him to the crime. Police found no evidence at the crime scene connected to him, no credible motive for him to commit the crime, and he also had an alibi on the night from the barn Hills, which of course were the people that he was renting the room from. Right. What was the alibi? Well, Joe and Betty Barnhill said that they watched television with him in their home until 9 p.m. on Christmas night, making it impossible for him to have broken into the Ramsey home while the Ramseys were out, because we know the Ramseys were out on Christmas night. Um, The Barnhills also told police that Meyer had gone to bed after that because he had had the stomach flu, that he was not feeling well. Now, some could argue that the timeline could have been incorrect, could he have snuck out and snuck into the Ramsey's house and waited in there for some amount of time? Again, is that possible? Anything in the grand scheme of anything being possible? Sure. Sure. But this is, again, that is the alibi that was presented. And he was exonerated based on DNA, based on all of those other things, based on passing the polygraph. So it was seemed that he was exonerated. Sure. However, two months later in March 1997, at the urging of the Ramsey's private investigator, Ellis Armistead, police reinvestigated Glenn Meyer. Um, They found that he had financial debts, which they said could have been a motive for him to kidnap Jean Benet for ransom. But it's unclear whether Meyer, whether his intention was to kidnap her and take her away or why he decided to then murder her and leave her in the house or... There's again, like, okay, so he's in debt, he needs money. That that's a motive, but it's unclear why the the crime would have taken the turn that it did. And I'm just speaking about all of this as though I'm assuming everyone who's listening knows about the jean Bonnet case. Of if course. you don't, skip ahead a you know a few minutes and or go and listen to the jean Bonnet episode that we did, where we outline all of it. Um, but it's a pretty well-known case, and I think most true crime people have a you know basic understanding of what was going on there. So. Police questioned him again at that time. They took another blood sample, and again, nothing was found connecting him to the crime. Now, John and Patsy Ramsey, of course, jean Bonnet's parents, both mentioned him in their police interviews saying that he had come to the Christmas party at their house on December 23rd. He was not invited, but he had popped by looking for Joe Barnhill. So some people saw that as being like, is he casing the joint? Does that mean something? Or is it just that he was looking for his roommate? Again, who knows? Sure. So, but that was something to note. The district attorney's reinvestigator Lou Smith, we remember Lou Smith, yeah. um, investigated Glen Meyer again in 1998, asking questions of him, of John Ramsey. Um, it should also be noted Lou Smith never named him as a suspect, despite naming several others over the years. Um, And despite despite all of this, the district attorney's office and the Ramsey's private investigators continued to investigate Meyer independently. However, once again, nothing was found to link him to the crime, no evidence. And they soon moved on to other suspected intruder suspects such as Michael Helgoth and John Mark Carr, who I know we spoke about when we did the episode. Right. So by the 2000s, at this point, he's been investigated at least three times by different investigators at that point. No one involved in the case is saying he's a suspect. He's been exonerated three times over by multiple different investigators, both hired by the Ramseys, from the police. Like, at this point, it feels like not the guy. Right. So why is he being brought up as a new suspect in a TikTok being made in 2021 on my feed? Of course. I wanted to know. Well, I'll tell you what I found out. Tabloid editor Dylan Howard, who runs the National Enquirer, or did run the National Enquirer and various other tabloids, um, was basically known through the National Enquirer to t- run a lot of stories about Jean Bonnet. As we know, Jean Bonnet is a story that yeah. grips everyone. Of and course. I'm I'm speculating, but I'm going to speculate and say probably sells magazines to have her on the cover. So of it was not on, nor on you know over the past 25 years since her death. National Enquirer has written a lot, you know, run a lot of cover stories with her on them, but he specifically at his time working for, and I'll get into his tenure in a second. um, But in 2018, he published a string of articles in the National Enquirer specifically about Glenn Meyer. The first was February 2nd, 2018. The name of the article was shock confession. My husband murdered John Bonet claims by Meyer's ex-wife, Charlotte. Hay, who I referenced, um, stating that she believed that he killed Bonnet because she asked him about it and he didn't deny it. She claims it was suspicious that he had kept newspaper clippings about the case. She also claimed he used up all my savings. He couldn't keep a job. But it's unclear why she would have waited 20 years to share her suspicions and why she would have Mm -hmm. done it in a tabloid as opposed to calling the police. I don't know. Again, I am simply presenting what I found. Sure. Charlotte Hay, side note. (laughs) Charlotte says that Glenn Meyer had violently spanked one of her children and had struck another, though that he had never hit her. She said when she asked him if he had killed Jean Benet, he would just smile. And she says that he had a shrine to Jean Benet on his wall in his room at Major Manor. She also said that he was very interested in sex, but she didn't state how that connected to any of this. I just report the facts, folks, as I read them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh So I would offer this. I think it is more than possible that Glenn Meyer might not have been a great guy. I think that it's possible that what she is saying is true about him potentially being physically abusive to her children. But as we know, that does not prove murder. It does not prove intent. It does not prove motive, any of the above. And there's no proof of this shrine that she refers to, to Jean Benet. Um, we also do know, regarding that shrine, that he did have dementia at the time he was living at Major Manor. So I would I would offer or speculate sure. that it is, I think, possible that if you were accused of killing a child and then develop dementia, I think it is possible that your brain, through that trauma or sorting that out, could potentially become fixated on that kind of figure um and and I don't know when she when she speaks about asking him about did you kill Jean Bonnet it appears and I, I again do not quote me but it appears that this was later in life. So my point again would be if he was already suffering from dementia when you asked him that question and he didn't respond and smiled at you I don't know that he's a credible witness to his own story at that time very sadly. yeah.
2: I just, I also love that she's so determined to outright ask out of nowhere,
1: you know? Well, and they had been a split for a very long time. So it's, it is interesting that, mm-hmm. you know, why 20 years after, you know, 20 plus years after the murder was this all of a sudden happening. And I don't have an answer for that question at all. But I want to state again, I believe women. You know, we we talk about that on this show a lot. we We believe women, but but i I will also say that I also believe science. And I believe that if there is no physical evidence tying him to this case, that 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 is also an important thing to take into ca- account right. And again, basing this on him potentially having these newspaper clippings and whatever she described as a shrine. But again, I couldn't find any photographic documentation of, right. That's her, that's her, you know, that's her description. We haven't seen it. And uh, he was suffering from dementia at the time, which, again, if that's touched anyone's life, dementia is a tough thing. And it's, you know, it can it can make our loved ones very sadly go through a lot uh, of things, turning them into people that they, you know, aren't normally like. I'm not defending him either, but I'm simply stating that it's like, I don't think that this these are these aren't. Um, this isn't factual evidence, scientific-based evidence. Right. You know. So, back to Dylan Howard's list of 2018 articles about Glenn Meyer. February 8th, 2018. The headline was, Glenn Meyer's body to be dug up. Apparently, anonymous investigators were going to exhume his body. Despite the fact that his DNA didn't match the unidentified DNA found at the Sound, one anonymous investigator told the Inquirer, I think there could be benefits forensically to to exhuming him. March 7th, 2018, Jean Benet murder bombshell. Beauty queen was killed by two men. April 4th, 2018, case closed. Ransom note IDs Jean Benet Ramsey's killer. In this one, it claimed handwriting matches the ransom note. Mm. And July 23rd, 2018, the headline Jean Benet killer finally found. It claimed that Facebook poster Roscoe Clark had solved the case after reportedly giving information about Meyer, Glenn Meyer, to the Boulder Police Department. Now, it should also be noted that Roscoe Clark was a source in the February article that Dylan published, Mm -hmm. as well as the April article. In fact, the April 4th article about Glenn Meyer's handwriting being a match for the ransom note was a claim coming solely from Roscoe Clark in a Facebook post. So let's talk about Roscoe Clark. Mm -hmm. Many of the tabloid articles implicating Glenn Meyer are explicitly based on the claims by this Roscoe Clark gentleman who runs the Facebook page, Jean bonnet Investigation. Clark, who as far as I can tell, I don't know what his formal training or accreditation is in terms of forensic investigation. Sure. Um, I did find sources saying that he has no formal training or accreditation. I couldn't find... Anything saying he did, I did find sources saying he didn't. Mm -hmm. Again, I am going to present to you what I found, and I want you, the listeners, to be the judge. Sure. So he is known for reconstructing pieces of evidence in his own home and photographing them on backgrounds similar to the original Boulder Police evidence backgrounds. He also dresses up in clothing, resembling an actual CSI investigator. He also makes elaborate drawings and diagrams of element elements to the crime scene, and he has made plaster casts of Jean-Benet Ramsey's skull. He has reconstructed the garrote, which we know was the murder weapon, the ransom note, her skull, and other items. Again, <clears throat> I present to you what I find. <clears throat> His theory of the crime is that there were multiple intruders, one of whom was Glenn Meyer, and that they were the intruders were still hiding in the Ramsey home. On the morning of December 26th, even while police were searching the house. Okay. Okay. He believes that Jean Benet was stabbed in the head many times um, with the screwdriver end of a red Swiss Army knife. He also creates ice sculptures in honor of Jean Benet Ramsey. One was of an angel with her name on it. I'll post a photo to the Instagram. Oh. So, I visited his Facebook page, which has about 10,000 followers, and there are a lot of posts. I'm talking many, 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 many posts every day. I will also say that many of those posts involve a photo of what is apparently Jean Bonnet Ramsey's skull from her autopsy. And I did eventually have to stop this research. Because it became overwhelming to scroll and see it over and over and over and over again. Like I, mm. for my own mental health, I did have to, to and I tried to like shield it, but it, I just kept seeing it and it was really awful. And so yeah. I've tried to find as much as I can, but I'll present to you the what I, the rest of what I did find before scrolling away. And I, I think that you all can be the judge. Sure. So... He believes that the garrote used in her killing was not to kill her, but was actually being used for something he refers to as cord bondage. This is something used mm-hmm. to choke a victim, bring them close to death and then bring them back over and over again. Now this is something I believe that John Wayne Gacy actually also did. And he talks about using a garrote as well and that he, he did do this. <laughs> so there is something to that. Certainly that's, that's a possibility of course. Um, but then he wrote, and I want to make it very clear that these are these are the Post's words and not mine. Hispanic male native Indian intruder got off on this type of cord bondage. That was, that was, there wasn't anything to, to back that up, or I don't know where that was coming from, but that mm-hmm. was the allegation being made. Then on September 6th, 2021, he posted, and I quote, John Ramsey reported that when he first found Jean Benet on the floor of the wine cellar, she was wrapped up like a papoose. The person of interest that we collect DNA from was a Hispanic male slash native Indian. He grew up with papoose. Again, that is a direct quote. Oh, Roscoe. (laughs) So, yeah. So, Uh... He also also references a female intruder. His belief is that it was two males and one female. And he says that the female intruder intruder drew a happy cat face in the carpet in the basement. I saw what what and it's kind of there, but it's kind of like one of those. I mean, again, other people can be the judge. August 28th, 2021. This this was a post, again, and I'm reading this verbatim. I am not. I I present it to to the facts. I present the facts. The post read, The female intruder had her heavy period on Christmas 1996. Some people have irregular periods all their lives, whether it's unpredictable when it'll come or unpredictable how long it'll last. While there's no such thing as a normal period, every woman's menstrual cycle is unique and can fluctuate throughout her lifetime. There are some generally accepted characteristics of a healthy period, says gynecologist Carmon James, M.D., Complete menstrual cycle is 24 to 35 days in length. We cannot identify the female intruder by her menstrual cycle because it may have changed over the years. So well, my thing was, what? <laughs> um. So, but, but then I, I yeah, because I was like, well, how does that c- connect to any of this? I guess the implication is that he was suggesting that that pads were used in the cleanup. So then someone commented on this post saying, I am just reading. Mm. Now, this one takes the cake. You are really stretching your credibility here to which the account responded, forensic science cannot lie. And then a, a few minutes later, the account responded again, we are making a pineapple cherry grapes fruit cake. I will also add that after that, on September 6th again, 2021, he posted, Jean Benet was fed pineapple fruitcake at 5.30 a.m. The document lab will bake a fresh pineapple cheeses and grapes fruitcake Monday. We will post photos and explain what it tasted like, what Jean Benet ate last. So he's alleging that the female intruder fed Jean Bonnet the fruitcake, and I guess that accounts for the pineapple in her stomach? Uh,
2: not The bowl of pineapple that was literally sitting on the table. And the fact that pineapple was found in her stomach, not cake.
1: Okay. Yeah. Now, I know that pineapple is known to be a natural, like, digestive enzyme. So I guess, and I didn't see any of this written on the page, I guess you could allege that is it possible the pineapple could have broken down other simple sugars so that all that would be remaining sure. is the pineapple. I, I don't know a ton about digestion in in, in that kind of deep science sense, but po- possible of, a, of a, that could be an, an allegation. Again, I didn't read that there. I'm really trying to... Yeah. Anyway, so bottom line is this. I didn't see any mention of Glenn Meyer... In any of these recent posts, and like I said, after about 10 minutes of scrolling back and there's a lot of posting, I did disengage from the page for my own mental health because of Of those images. Um, But I do feel like I learned a lot from what I just communicated, Mm. and I will get into that uh, at the end. But I also just want to add that in May of this year, 2021, Radar Online, which is, uh uh-oh, owned by the same company that owns, I don't know, the National Enquirer, published an article saying... 25 years after the murder of Bonnet Ramsey, there may be more answers that give insight into who was behind the beauty queen's killing. According to Radar, there is a new potential suspect that has been identified in the high-profile case as investigators continue to bring answers to her family. Roscoe J. Clark, the founder of the online group Jean Bonnet Investigations and co-investigator Derek Bromerich gathered a DNA sample from a discarded cigarette after they've kept a close eye on the individual they think may be responsible. The DNA was given to Sheriff Mike Angus in Flint, Michigan, on May 7th. The report is intended to be passed on to the local FBI office. Both Bromerich and Clark traveled to Ramsey's hometown of Boulder, Colorado, to collect the sample. And Clark intends to send a copy of the report to the Boulder Police Department, the Boulder County Sheriff's Office, and to District Attorney Michael Doherty. This will give all of the options, Clark said, this could be the breakthrough everyone has been waiting for during the past 24 years and it's based on hard evidence and forensic science. I am 100 perfect positive, I think they meant percent positive, that we have the right suspect and we can't rule this person out. Now, the outlet says they were currently withholding the potential suspect's name so authorities have enough time to gather their evidence without alerting the person that they may be responsible. The person they have in mind is apparently linked to one of the Ramsey's neighbors. So, I don't know who this person is in Colorado that they, and I'm going to use this word lightly, but allegedly stalked in order to collect their DNA. Because the way it sounds, and I am, again, I'm using their own words here. They apparently took this trip to Colorado to trail someone that they feel is a suspect and collect their DNA. Okay, so they apparently did that. Sure. And then they turned that sample in in Flint, Michigan, rather than Colorado. So I don't know why that decision was made either. I'm just presenting the facts. They said in an update that it was a mixture of DNA. And I'm not 100% sure what that means, but they kept stating that there was high levels of a match, but that it would be impossible to have an exact match because it was a DNA mixture, but that it's a high level of match and the Boulder police apparently were not super interested in these DNA results. But my question is this. How did they have access to the original DNA to run it against this new DNA? Like, as far as I can tell, these are just individual citizens who are taking right. it upon themselves to do these kinds of things. And so I mean, I could I could take this Diet Coke can to somewhere and say, or I guess I'm I'm asking, like, I take this to Flint, Michigan and I say, run this for DNA against the Jean Bonnet killer. Does does the do the people in Flint, Michigan have access to the unidentified Jambonet killer DNA to just run anybody's DNA against? Right,
2: yeah. That feels less possible. Um, I I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> and I know yeah. that it's just, the thing that's currently catching me um, the most is the comment of, We know that this cake is what she was fed. And so we're going to bake it and we'll tell you how it tastes like that to me is like, oh no, that's, that's, that's too much. That's not, nope, that uh, this, this just feels like this has become just a full, full obsession. And They're just like, well, no, we've got to keep going till we get it because that is one of the largest cases and they want so much to be the person who cracked it. And it's, I get it, but back up there, like
1: there's... Well, yeah, and listen, I under—I agree with you 100. And and look, I think that all of us want that case solved more than any. I mean, we want all the cases solved. Don't get me wrong, but it is a case that has obviously gripped you know the world, and um it. And I can understand. Look, we could we could do an entire podcast just about that case. Like, there's so many levels and layers, and you can only get to so many details when you try and do one episode on that case or any case really. Um, but. I agree with you that it, it feels like, you know, it's also important to to and 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 as I'll you know continue. Obviously, th- I think what I'm really trying to outline here is again just like when all of the sources, like like I think we forget pot- potentially. I'm going to skip ahead for a second. Sure. I think we forget potentially that one outlet can own multiple. Publications, right? And so, if you're cross referencing multiple cu- publications, you also have to cross reference if they're related to each other, right? Right. So, but I'll get to more about that in a minute. Um. So, again, I don't understand how they would have been able to run the DNA. Like, I just didn't know that a private citizen could go in and run yeah. DNA. I'm not saying it's impossible because I don't know. But again, just presenting the facts. <laughs> now. Apparently, they say that their belief is there are six persons of interest and the belief is, again, three intruders, two men, one woman, one woman, and that many of Jean Benet's injuries occurred after the 911 call was made, which would mean, of course, that the parents and the brother were all awake in the house at the time and that the intruders were still in the house in the basement with Jean Benet and that Jean Benet was still being injured at that time, which, again, that timeline is difficult for me because then the mm-hmm. police started coming to the house and then how would they get out? But again, moving on. Now, you remember that I mentioned that Glenn Meyer's handwriting was say to, said to be a match for the ransom note? Yeah. Radar Online wrote in 2018, the handwriting of violent drifter, that's how they described him, violent drifter Glenn Meyer, already fingered as a suspect in the murder of jean Jean-Benet Ramsey. Again, just take note of, of these, the way that they're speaking about this person And given what we know to be fact, okay? Because what we know to be fact is that he was exonerated three times. He was fully investigated and exonerated three times. But they're saying, already a suspect matches the lettering on a ransom note left in her home. That's the conclusion of a top forensic investigator who compared a sample of Meyer's handwriting with a notorious note. Mm. Who was the top forensic investigator? Say it with me, everybody. Uh, It was Roscoe Roscoe Clark. Uh. Radar Online says, Roscoe examined... Glenn Meyer's signature on a 1974 Florida marriage license and found several letters identical to the ransom note found in the Ramsey's Boulder, Colorado home. Meyer had a unique writing style that's consistent with the ransom note, he said. Then in another article I read on another unrelated site, it said, one expert claims that the handwriting is a perfect match. So right there, you've had an exact sentence copied and pasted. So it's a a different publication, but they've copied and pasted an exact sentence. All of this that I'm leading to will pay off, I promise. Of course. Um, but it said, of course, uh, blah, 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 um, that he said this, he said Meyer had a unique handwriting style that's consistent with the ransom note, making it highly likely that he wrote it. couple of things here. One, oh. that is a massive statement to make, a massive statement to make, saying it is highly likely he wrote it when there's been other handwriting experts that have said he didn't, you better be able to come forward with the proof that you are a handwriting analysis expert. I'm not saying he isn't because I haven't seen his documentation. What I'm saying is is that that's a massive statement to make Mm -hmm. and you better be able to back it up. Number two, I looked at the two pieces of handwriting and I'm not an expert whatsoever, but personally, I, I, I I didn't see it. Now, I don't have any training. Maybe they see things that I don't. That's also possible. However, then the inquirer, requested that Glenn Meyer's ex-wife Charlotte also review the ransom note, and she said the handwriting did resemble her ex-husband's, saying there was a distinctive way he wrote the letters G and Y. Again, I am not an expert here, but I looked at the Ys between the two, and they were completely different. So if he had a unique way he was writing them, I don't know, and I I, I can't believe I'm even having to say this, but but an ex-wife speculating about whether or not a handwriting mm. sample matches is not admissible, in any court of law on the planet. Full stop. So, there's also new evidence pointing to Meyer being Jean Benet's killer being brought forward in the past few years, supported by the deathbed confession of a female neighbor who claimed she saw Glenn Meyer near the Ramsey home on the night of the killing. This is a quote. So, the neighbor is positive she saw Meyer approaching the house the night of the murder. Who made that quote? Who brought this forward? Roscoe Clark, once again, he told this to the Inquirer. John Ramsey did once tell the Inquirer that Lou Smith, who, of course, was the former detective hired to investigate the crime, that he did zero in on Glenn Meyer due to potential connections to the ransom note, potential evidence found in his basement apartment at the Barnhill home. But John Ramsey also said Lou Smith said there was a photo of a Navy Avenger aircraft in the basement with this SBTC lettering on it, which seems beyond coincidental. And I agree with that. That seems like a huge clue. If that's the end of the ransom note and there's a photo in his room with those letters, that's weird. But where's the photo? Because I can't find it anywhere. And again, given the fact that all of the rest of the scientific forensics have cleared him three different sets, it is possible it's a coincidence. It doesn't prove murder when nothing else at nothing else connects, right? Sure. I'm talking about this like a lawyer would is my point. Like again, yes. like in a court of law, we got to prove reasonable doubt. We got reasonable doubt out the wazoo here. So, I will also note one investigative journal, investigative journalist named Jeff Shapiro, who pursued several intruder suspects over the years, said that Glenn Meyer uh, was harmless, just a nice guy. That's just for again another sure. opinion. Um, oh shit, I can't not mention this about Dylan Howard's Side note. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Dylan Howard was chief content officer of American Media Inc. from 2014 to 2019. American Media and Inc. publishes The National Enquirer, RadarOnline.com, Globe, In Touch, New Idea, Us Weekly, OK, Star, Life and Style, The National Examiner, and various other tabloid publications. Wow. Okay. So one man was was controlling the content. He was the chief content officer for all of those publications. <laughs> mm-hmm. Dylan Howard has been widely accused of disreputable business practices, particularly in his efforts to protect Harvey Weinstein. Oh. <laughs> he sent a reporter to discredit sexual assault allegations made by the actress Rose McGowan against mm-hmm. Weinstein. And in 2015, the National Acquirer, allegedly approached Ambra Bataliana, Battilana, so sorry, to purchase the rights to her story about being groped by Harvey Weinstein after Weinstein asked for help from a newspaper's executive. So I guess he put out a call like, somebody needs to help me. And they were like, the National Enquirer was like, we'll do the job. So gross. Mm-hmm. When no agreement could be made between the National Enquirer and Ambra, um, the National Enquirer staff turned to collect damaging personal information on her and other Weinstein accusers. Side note in a side note, Ambra was 22 in 2015 when Weinstein assaulted her, and she says she barely spoke English at the time. She was a model. She went to the police the night that he assaulted her, the night that he groped her. She went immediately to the police, and what did they do? They told her to go back the next day wearing a wire, and she did. So she went back the next day to see him. She called him out on what had happened the night before. He admitted to it. There is a full recording of him admitting to absolutely everything. Okay? But what happened? Well, she was bullied into signing an NDA and being given a cash payout. She was threatened. Her modeling career basically was completely destroyed because he was an extremely powerful man at this point. Her family was threatened. So she said she signed the NDA. Again, she didn't she Again, according to her, that she didn't have a great grasp on the English language at the time. She didn't fully understand what she was signing. So she signed it. But she came forward with that recording anyway in 2017. And I just want to give her a shout out because I think that is incredibly brave. And 100. We, we don't deserve um, people who are willing to do those kinds of things and put themselves on the line because that must have been terrifying. And I commend her. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> I digress. Dylan Howard and American Media Inc. have drawn criticism for a practice called catch and kill, which basically means they buy the exclusive rights to embarrassing or damaging information about a wealthy person and then keep it secret in an exchange for money or other famous, sorry, favors from the person affected. It's literal blackmail. We're talking about literal blackmail. Mm. So in 2019, Dylan Howard attempted unsuccessfully to blackmail Jeff Bezos with apparently some sort of controversial photos, and he also tried to block the publication of Ronan, Ronan Farrow's book about his company's catch-and-kill practices. Uh, the book was, of course, Catch-and-Kill, Lies, Spies, and a Conspiracy to Protect Predators, which was released in 2019. Dylan Howard failed. Um, the book was has since become an audiobook, a podcast, and most recently an HBO documentary series. Oh. In the wake of all of this and the outcry against American Media and Inc.'s catch and kill practices, the company sold off several of its publications, including the National Enquirer. Dylan Howard has since focused his efforts on writing books and producing podcasts. So mm. all of this to say, what do I think of this new Glenn Meyer, quote, revelation? Sure. Well, I'm not going to tell you what I think. I'm going to tell you what I know because I'm choosing to stick to the facts. Of course. Number one, Glenn Meyer is not a new suspect. He was one of the first suspects who was investigated three times by three different groups, different different groups of detectives. Number two, and this is the one that I really just, and I say this with love, but I want to encourage people out there to really do some research before perpetuating misinformation. I know that using jean Bonnet's name is gonna get you a lot of views, a lot of clicks, but unless you have something really helpful, something genuinely new, or perhaps a theory that we haven't heard before, presenting information in this manner, in my opinion, dilutes the investigation and is not helpful. Number three, I wanna clarify. When I say do your research, that does not mean reading Facebook or articles based on Facebook posts by self-proclaimed experts. If you have watched The Social Dilemma on Netflix, uh, you already know this. But if you haven't, I would encourage you to give it a view because it shows you how Facebook was actually used by the military in Myanmar to incite a mass genocide. And this is not a bit. I know what you're thinking. How is that possible? Well, I'll tell you very quickly. It was very easy for them. Members of the military posed as fans of pop stars and national heroes and just started posting propaganda. Um, The propaganda grew bigger and bigger and ended up inciting murders, rapes, and the largest forced human migration in recent history. The Facebook campaign included hundreds of Myanmar military personnel who created troll accounts and news and celebrity pages on Facebook, and then flooded them with hateful comments and posts timed for peak viewership. Facebook has also confirmed, yes, this did happen. At one point in 2018, Facebook said it took down a series of accounts that seemed to be independent pages, either on entertainment, beauty, or information, but that were actually deemed fake and run literally by the Myanmar military. Those accounts at the time had 1.3 million followers. A study estimated in January of the same year, 2018, uh, stated that the military there and local Rakhini population killed at least 25,000 Rohingya people and perpetrated gang rapes and other forms of sexual violence against 18,000 Rohingya women and girls, they estimated that 116,000 Rohingya were beaten and 36,000 were thrown into fires. Jesus. The largest wave of Rohingya to flee Myanmar happened in 2017, um, which was the largest human exodus in Asia since the Vietnam War. According to the United Nations reports, over 700,000 people fled or were driven out of the Rakini state and took shelter in neighboring Bangladesh um, as refugees. The United Nations officials called this a textbook example of ethnic cleansing. And Facebook did acknowledge that they were too slow to act on any of this. I bring this up because if Facebook was the main tool used to literally instigate a genocide, it's an example of the power that the platform wields and how groups can utilize it to push their own messaging. And I know that things on Facebook and things you see on the internet can seem really real and they can seem factual and like they're based in facts that maybe you haven't seen before. But I would encourage everyone to treat Facebook with our mantra, trust no one, because if one country's military could use it in this way, I would offer. Think about how other groups could use it to their own advantage. So articles from lesser known publications or, you know, the non-mainstream media, as some may have, noted, have have labeled it, sometimes are maybe not mainstream for a reason. And as I've seen a lot, um, they will repost what other articles say without cross-referencing or fact-checking. And I think in this case, what I'm seeing is one person decided to really give this Roscoe character a mm-hmm. platform. But the platform that he gave him was a multitude of press outlets, which at first glance, I had no idea that all of those press outlets were owned by the same company and that the content was being controlled by one single person during those that five-year span. Right. So right there, if you go online and you think you're doing your homework, you think you're trying to get two or three sources, I get it. It could easily seem like you did. Well, I got three sources saying the same thing, which is something that we like to do on this show. Make sure that you get sure. multiple sources to make sure that what you're saying isn't just you know some one person's speculation. But that was the one thing that started to stick out to me was when I started to see the same sentences verbatim in these different articles. And it was actually after that that I discovered that, oh my gosh, well, the reason why there's the same sentence is because they're all owned by the same people. Maybe. And so, listen, I know we started... This side note as being a potential update about a new suspect. And I know that it's turned into me begging people to try and treat the Internet with the power and respect that it deserves (laughs) with great power becomes great responsibility. But I do think that it was an interesting, um, you know, it was an interesting kind of uh, conversation to have because. I know there's a lot of people out there who are into true crime and I love that because we are too. And and I love sure. that people are putting stuff out there and, and all of the above. But again, I, I do implore people just to really, if you want to do it, the one thing that people often say about our show, and this is a little homage because it's our 50th episode, is that our show is so well-researched. And I will say, thank you. <laughs> um, and also, uh, but but that is the truth. And And I do think that it's important to remember that and it's important to... Again, if you're going to put something out there, just check your sources. Because when I found out that all of those publications were citing one expert, and the one expert was somebody who we can't even be sure has accreditations, and then I went and read the posts which I've shared, which, again, I want you all to you know draw your own conclusions um, because we're alleging and we don't want lawsuits. But you know what I'm saying? I think that we start to see how important it is that if you're going to dip a toe into this world...
3: Hey, you got to do your real research.
1: Yeah. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails. <laughs> Vying for a Pulitzer, Lauren Ash. <laughs> oh,
2: oh, God, I just could not love you more. Um, I love that instantly I'm just like right out the gate and I can just leave this as my full thoughts on this other suspect. I don't believe a 64-year-old man did this. Especially if it meant sneaking into a house and sneaking out of a house without being seen. I just
1: don't. Well, and the, the well, also the allegation, remember, is that it was not only him, it was him and two others. It yeah. was three and people then, sneaking in and out.
2: So then it's like, oh,
1: okay, well, then who are the other two? Well, apparently like, this one person whose DNA they have, and then this unknown woman.
2: Oh, this, you know. I Yeah, I also, I could start um, a Facebook group about something. And if I talk about it enough, be like, well, I'm just, I've talked about it so much. I'm basically an expert now. Absolutely. And then you go and of course, a publication, especially something like the National Enquirer is going to be quick to be like, well, let's Google f- about Jean Bonnet And it's like, oh, well, look, there's a group. That's dedicated to this. It's specifically called the investigation. They must know so many things. And it's like, no, what they do is they bake cakes to tell us how it tastes so we can know what her final meal tastes like. And again, I don't know why you assume that was the what she ate. Um, It's just there's just so many things like so... Three people went into the house, and then, like, what was the the point of it? Like, did you want the money, but then you (laughs) left her there instead of getting her out of the house? Or,
1: like... Well, that's where it starts to all get muddled. Because at some points, it seems that it's being argued that Glenn Meyer needed the money because he was in debt. But then at other points, it seems... That all of a sudden it was about this weird, you know, you know, choking and, and bringing the person back to life situation. Right. Um, and then I don't know how that would play into the rest of it. And I don't know how that would play into the note. And again, it it's. It's I understand again that it's a case that is is so confounding to so many. And I, I understand the want for answers, et cetera. But when we are providing one person, a, a you know, large platform, which again, um To me, the reason why I say it's large, because I know people could say like, well, the National Inquirer, and I get that. But the problem, like I'm saying is, is that when the National Enquirer and this entire slew of other publications are posting the same information, it does make this person look like he has credibility. And when you start to try and cross-reference, it goes, oh, well, yeah, I mean, this is being covered by all these places. And it's not until you start to dig in, like I did, that you go, well, hold on a second. Let's take a look here. Well, all of these you know, all of the claims by all of these publications are coming from one source. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. and, and you know, for context, it also was, I did this also in an afternoon. Now, it took me a few hours, obviously, but my point being, too, is I just think there is that want to, like, it's like how Twitter gives you the warning now where if there's an article and you want to share it, it's like, do you want to read this before you it share it? First? it? Yeah, Which yeah. I think is great because I think this is a great example of you read an article that says there's new information and then you're putting it back out there. Now you've become another source. Now you've continued. Right. Right. And we've seen, again, that's literally, now I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, be a fear monger, but I am just saying that it's the sure. same model that caused that genocide to happen. It was that all of these hundreds of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of fake accounts were putting out this specific rhetoric and then one person would share it and then another person and then another person and then all of a sudden I mean it it also shows though that it's like but if we tried to harness it for good we have that power too sure but it's it's tough to slag through the the, the negative sometimes yeah
2: and look I I grew up with the National Enquirer in my home my parents- Me too. Obsessed with it. That was like the thing you get every time you go grocery shopping. And- National Enquirer and Women's World was- A hundred percent. The two. Yes. Yes. Um, and when I think National Enquirer, I think the Weekly World News from So I Married an Axe Murderer. Mm-hmm. Um, And when he's trying to uh, have that conversation with his mom about like, well, but you call it the paper- It's not really... And she was like, it's got facts. Pregnant man gives birth. Fact. Like, and just... I did not do her accent any justice, but my point is, I love that movie so much, but I will not think of National Enquirer in any way other than Weekly World News. That's what it will forever be to me. Yeah. And it's it makes a lot of sense that they're all connected because of course they all will always run the same thing you go like it's like when uh things were really getting hot there with britney suddenly it's like look at all these publications running the same kind of story and it's like oh it just turns out it's the same person just lazily dusting off the same story and making it look like everybody's covering it
1: when they're not. Exactly. And it work, It happens so quickly now. Again, you know, back in our day as children, um, <laughs> you know, it yeah. was a different story, but now it's a few clicks, right? It's sharing to a few different people. And, you know, in a few seconds, the same article has been reworded and, and repurposed and shared from eight different publications that look like they're not necessarily related and then all of a sudden you have something that seems like a viable news story that that isn't necessarily that is true speculation on one person's part and and yeah. using the word speculation, I think is maybe even being kind, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Just yeah, trying to you know protect us dear listeners. Of anyway, um listen, I've taken us on such a such a complete uh, left-hand turn, but that's what happens on this show. Of uh so let's take a quick break, get another drink, hit the can, and we're going to be back with Kira Coles here on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails.
0: Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that.
1: Back to this episode of True Cram and Cocktails. Uh, Before the break, obviously, I took us on a complete left-hand turn into a story that was not intended to take so long. But uh, now we're going to dive into the case, of course, of Kiera Coles. So if you're not familiar, I'm going to get you up to speed right now with a little synopsis before Christy tells us everything we need to know. So, in October 2018, 26-year-old Kiera Coles called in sick to work and then vanished she was 3 months pregnant at the time so what happened to kiera Coles? did she uncharacteristically decide to abandon the life that she had worked so hard for or did her pregnancy make her a target and why have police made a public request to speak with kiera's boyfriend
2: i'd like to know mm. same <laughs> yeah look i have to i have to give a disclaimer right off the top yes. here. So this case is only 3 years old. Yeah. Um well it's coming up on the 3 year anniversary in a few weeks from when we release. Um but even then even though it's fairly recent there is so little information available about this case. I promise dear people that I dug as deep as I could. Um, and I'm going to share everything that I have found. But sadly, there is just not a lot to find. Um, I just want don't want our people to think that my skills have gotten soft. No! Uh, in any way. But also, it's... I mean, we, I, we'll get into it more later. But there is a lot to be said about the fact that Kiera goes missing and there's just no information about it. Whereas, you know, I don't know, just off the top of my head, Natalie Holloway goes missing and there is a lot of information. Um, I'm just, I'm just saying there's definitely something about how things get, are getting investigated and how things are getting reported a hundred percent. And if, if police aren't giving information to the public, I have no access to their files, so.
1: And to be clear, because we're just going to put it out there, because I'm also four glasses of wine in. Um, Kiera obviously is a, a person of color, and so the yes. implication that we were, you know, alluding to, and that I will make just very boldly is is what we all know, which is that that these cases um, don't get the same. It's it's hard to even imagine that it's still the case, but. We see it again and again in the true crime world, certainly since we've been in the true crime world. It's stunning the lack of information that can be found about cases involving uh, people of color. So, um, yeah, I I just, I I support you. I don't think anybody thinks that your research skills are getting soft (laughs) whatsoever. (laughs) Um, Mm. And, uh, and yeah, and listen, I mean, look, I, I also have to say, like, very quickly... Uh, obviously, I'm. I we all want the Jumane case solved, uh, and and that's that goes without saying. Um, and I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't stop trying to solve it. But I would also say, you know, again, with the amount of of time and energy and all of the above that's put into that case as an example, I'm only using it as an example. Um, of course, you know, it just makes you realize then when when you know you start to get into the research for a case like this that it's you know. When you don't even have a fraction of the information that what, you know, again, Natalie Holloway is a great touchstone, too. There was so much the entire world stopped turning, Um, which, again, I get it. It was horrific. It's awful. We're not suggesting that it shouldn't have. But but what we're suggesting is that it should stop turning for every one of these cases. That these cases should have the same amount of impact. And that's what's, you know, heartbreaking. But. Here we are. We're going to talk about it nonetheless, because that's important. And at least, you know, again, uh, as I say all the time, many small voices together can make an impact. So that's what's important.
2: Uh, I will also say um, that this episode will release 10 days before Kiera's 29th birthday, which feels very fitting to me. And that whole synchronicity synchronicity, we love so much. So Kiera Michelle Coles was born September 24th, 1992 to Karen Phillips and Joseph Coles. Kiera was the fourth of five children, although the only siblings that I could confirm were Kimberly and Keisha. So I'm not 100% sure if there were the other siblings, but I did read she was part of five kids, but I'm not 100% sure. Uh, Kiera was described as 5'4", with black hair and brown eyes. Her ears were pierced, and she had five tattoos, including a heart on her left hand, the phrase Lucky Libra on her back, a jaguar's head on the back of her shoulder, words on her wrist, and words on her chest. Kiera was known for her vibrant personality. She was described as loving, hardworking, stubborn, and caring. Her family said Kiera treated her nieces and nephews as her own, and that she was always mothering other people, so much so that her father nicknamed Kiera the boss. (laughs) Family described Kiera as a social media freak and said she was always on Snapchat. Always. Kiera had been with the United States Postal Service as a letter carrier for approximately three years. At the time of her disappearance, Kiera was about 11 weeks pregnant, as it was said her baby was due April 23rd, 2019. Kiera's mother, Karen, said the pregnancy was planned and that Kiera was very excited about it. According to Karen, Kiera requested October 1st and 2nd off from work for personal reasons. On October 2nd, Kiera attended a doctor's appointment with her aunt and a friend, During this visit, Kiara got to hear her baby's heartbeat for the first time, and it should be noted the baby's father was Kiara's boyfriend of several years, Joshua Simmons, but we'll get into more on Joshua later. From my understanding, Kiara was meant to be at work on the morning of October 3rd, 2018, but she called in sick. A spokesperson for the United States Post Office confirmed that Kiara called in sick that morning. Kiara's mother, Karen, uh, said that she tried to call her daughter on October 3rd, but didn't get through. Karen tried to call again on October 4th, but Kiara's phone kept going straight to voicemail. Her family has stated that even if Kiara ever felt like disconnecting from people, she would always talk to her mom. And Karen said that she spoke with Kiera daily. So the fact that already she's not in contact, something is up. So after two days of not getting a response, Karen was genuinely concerned. So she reached out to family to see if anyone had heard from Kiera. Uh, Her sister Kimberly said she got a ride from Kiera Monday, October 1st, but had not seen her since. Kiera also hadn't posted on social media in days, which was completely out of character for her. So after not getting a response and no one having much information, Karen goes to Kiera's apartment, and when she didn't get an answer there, she goes straight to the police station to report her daughter missing. The police conducted a welfare check and found Kiera's car parked outside of her apartment near 81st Street and Vernon Avenue in the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Street cred side note. I have seen some articles report Kiera's address as 82nd Street, not 81st. I've also seen records that claim she was on 61st Street which is near a post office, but I'm going forward with her address as 81st Street, as that is the address stated on the missing posters. I just don't want the people to think I gave false information. I have a rep to protect.
1: You had a rep to protect, and we all know you're doing it. You're doing it great, and we all love you for it. This album is writing... I itself. can't wait.
2: I, I would like us, the next time we're together... To drunkenly make
1: that album. A hundred percent. And then I feel like in every song, in every song we'll sample da-da, 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 that's <laughs> just the way it is. Every song will eventually have that in yeah. there somewhere.
2: And I'm sorry if I try to force us to use a triangle in any way. Ding. Cause I think it's a I think it's an instrument I could handle. You would kill it.
1: Okay, are you gonna not talk about the fact that you played uh, saxophone extremely well?
2: Oh, I, I would not say extremely well. Okay, I'm no Kenny G. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, no. Uh, but, oh, and that's the joke of my life. You get in, It was grade five, it was you can finally go into band. And I was like, here we go, here we go. I want to play saxophone more than anything. Um, And then for some reason they went, oh, for a first-timer? No, we won't allow that. The only way you can go into saxophone is you have to graduate from flute or clarinet. And I went, what? And so I ended up having to play flute for a year, which I hated. Um, And then I went into saxophone And then I ended up in like a jazz band where the um, I was just going to call him the leader because I couldn't think of what he's called. He uh, talked me into playing the largest saxophone known to man so large that he had to carry it to and from uh, performances for me because I couldn't lift it. So that's just the way it it is. (laughs) But I will also say. Shout out to Clint cuz he was super hot.
1: Nice. <laughs> and I can
2: I can say that now as um as an adult because it's not creepy because I was 13 at the time. Sure. But now it's like, well, I should look at him as a woman. See? As a woman. Yeah, as a Blanche. Oh, so So police find Kiera's car parked outside of her apartment. Inside the car, they find Kiera's phone, her purse, prenatal vitamins, and a packed lunch. And while her purse was in the car, it seems as though her wallet, including driver's license credit cards, were missing. Some reports claim the keys were missing. Some claim they were found in her apartment. I could not verify which. Uh, The family wanted to check Kiera's cell phone in the hopes of finding out if she placed the sick call herself or not. However, they didn't have the password to the phone. Karen spoke with the person who answered the call, and they are adamant that they spoke with Kiera. But to that I say, how can they be 100% sure? Because I think our voices are similar enough that if I needed to make a call for you, I might be able to pull it off.
1: I feel like I did make a call for you at some point. Didn't we, I feel like there was some, I think there was at some point, there was something that happened and I was like, this is Christy Oxborough. Like, I think we had to do it. It's, I can't remember. Everything's a blur from the past 50 episodes, but yes, to your (laughs) point, yes. That doesn't prove anything, that's speculation. And and look, I look at things now. (laughs) Here's, Here's something, over the past 50 episodes, yeah, um, you start to look at things differently. And I will say that's speculation in a court of law that will not yeah. hold up. No, it, it, one, one lawyer could say, like, but did you talk to her every day. Yes, I did. So you 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 know, it was her. Yes, I did. And then the other uh, <laughs> lawyer would say, objection, speculation. Like, it's just like because you don't know. And you also I will also say, and I know I'm getting ahead of myself because I don't know anything about this case. But also, we don't know if she was under duress, if it was her. We don't know that she was wasn't being forced to make that phone call. Mm -hmm. Right. So even if it was her, that still doesn't prove, in my opinion, doesn't prove anything because she could have had somebody forcing her to make her that make that phone call.
2: It's true. And I will say this. um, It's been now three years. So if I, I know maybe it's just TV, but shows tend to lead me to believe that even if you don't have the password like you can eventually use something to get into a phone so i need to believe that police have done that but if they have they've never said anything about it so they've never verified that yes her phone proved they have viewed her phone logs to to say whether or not specifically it was her again these are the kinds of things that get brought up time and time again in so many other cases and this one just So few things have been made public. Uh, So Chicago police do their welfare check on Thursday, October 4th, and they don't see any sign of Kiera. And yet somehow a missing persons alert didn't go out till Monday, October the 8th. I could not find the reason for that delay. Uh, Now, one of the biggest pieces of evidence uh, that the police received was surveillance camera footage from one of Kiera's neighbors. In the video, a woman is seen in a United States postal uniform, walk past Kiera's car, cross the street, and then head off camera. From what I can tell, the footage is from October 3rd, around 11.45am, but Kiera is listed as last seen October 2nd, which doesn't make sense if the surveillance camera spotted her October 3rd. Although it does make sense when Kiara's mother came forward to say not only was the woman in the video not Kiara, but that police knew that from the beginning and told her not to tell people that. What? February 2021, Karen Phillips announced that the footage actually showed another United States Postal employee who lived on the same street as Kiera, heading to work. Karen said that the police knew right away that the woman in the video wasn't Kiera, and they asked Karen not to go public with that information. Wow. I would love to know why, but uh, my first question is, why would they let the public believe the woman in the video was Kiera for years without saying something? Because, of course, the video raised a lot of questions, such as the fact that she'd called in sick that morning, but the woman in the video was clearly wearing her work uniform. That's weird. And this is something that people have gone on and on about for the last three years. And it's like, oh, well, but it it wasn't her. Uh, But why let the public believe that it was Kira in the video if it wasn't? Maybe because it gave the appearance that the police had some sort of evidence. Because without the footage, then where is any proof of the last time that Kiera was seen alive? We have the aunt and the friend who were at an appointment with her October 2nd. And then who do we know who saw her after that? Uh, So to quickly sum up everything we know about Kiera, apparently she always wanted a family. So she her plan was to get steady employment before getting pregnant in 2018. Not only was she working as a letter carrier, but she was also working part time as a Lyft driver, uh, which probably explains why she also bought a new car that same year. Kiera moved to a new apartment in the summer of 2018 and soon after discovered she was pregnant with her boyfriend Joshua's baby. According to Karen, Kiera said that her boyfriend Joshua was coming over on the evening of October 2nd, and then Kiera called in sick to work the next morning. Chicago police stated that they, quote, had a pretty good idea of what transpired and that Kiara's case was classified as a, quote, high-risk missing person investigation with potential foul play suspected. Which sounds to me like the police know something that they have not revealed. Something like possibly another neighbor of Kiera's coming forward with surveillance footage which shows Kiera and her boyfriend Joshua leaving Kiera's apartment and getting into separate vehicles. Now, this footage is said to be from the Tuesday before she disappeared. So I don't know if they mean October 2nd because that was a Tuesday or September 25th. But according to Karen, detectives told her that Kiera was seen at an ATM near her apartment that same night. Kiara was seen withdrawing $400 from her bank account and handing it to Joshua. Now again, I don't know if that was October 2nd or September 25th. I just know that this ATM trip happened the same night as the surveillance footage showing them leaving her apartment together. And I assume the police continued to search, but if they did, they didn't tell the family much about it, and they certainly didn't release any information about it. On November 30th, 2018, a local activist named Andrew Holmes organized a search in the Whistler Woods Forest Preserve in Riverdale, saying he chose the location based off tips from the community. Holmes refused to say more as to not jeopardize the police investigation. His quote is We don't want to search this forest preserve and then find a deceased body, but at the same time, if we do, then at least the family would know. 58 year old Andrew Holmes is a crisis responder and an advocate for victims of gun violence. Regarding Kiera's disappearance, Andrew has helped to search, passed out flyers, visited with the family, spoken with neighbors, and has been part of press conferences. Andrew's own daughter was killed in 2015, which he thought was going to stop him from doing what he does, but then decided that made him want to do what he does that much more. And it may not seem like the time for it, but I'm going to take us on a, Hey, Whistler Woods, you okay? Side note. The short answer is no. No, it's not. Uh, Over the past few decades, numerous bodies have been found in that area. The police started to worry that Whistler Woods was becoming a dumping ground for gang murder victims back in 1991, when multiple bodies were found within weeks of each other. One of the bodies was riddled with shotgun shotgun pellets, while the other featured trauma on the skull and hands from what police believe to have been a blowtorch. Oh, God. I was uh, also, uh, there were also bodies found in 2012 and 2020, and it just kind of keeps happening. Uh, while Kira's family knew about the search organized by Andrew Holmes, they did not personally participate. Chicago police were called to the scene after the searchers found multiple bones. Now, the truly chilling part to me is that I could not find a follow-up to that anywhere. I want to assume it means the bones were tested and found to be non-human, but how is there not a follow-up? There was, like, news reports on the police were brought in Bones were found. We're trying to find out if they're human or not. And then that same news never came back with like a, oh yeah, by the way, remember we mentioned bones? It was nothing. Like, or, like, they never came up with anything, which is terrifying to me. Uh, Kiera's friends and family also organized searches of their own, even her father- Joseph Coles, who was living in Wisconsin at the time, he quit his job and moved back to Chicago the second he heard that Kiara was missing. Joseph has vowed to remain in Chicago until Kiara is found. He hands out flyers, gives interviews to radio and TV stations, anything he can do to keep Kiara's name in the public's mind. And it is a tough job to keep her case in the public eye, especially when disappearances are all too common. In 2012, there were 661,000 missing persons cases reported in the United States. More than 659,000 of those were resolved within a year. And while the cases are an unsettling number, they have declined over the years. In 2019, there were only 609,000 missing persons cases and 2020, there was around 543,000, which is still a lot. But again, it's slowly going down uh, based on essentially it's so much easier to – cell phones have made life easier about tracking people and seeing things and cameras and all of that, especially compared to, you know, the olden days when we were children. <laughs> you know, back then it was like you have no idea and now it's so much easier. Yeah. Not always 100 percent, but it's easier than it used to be. Um, In fact, the number of missing person cases filed in the United States in 2020 was the lowest number that had been recorded since 1990. Wow. Yeah. Uh, California has the largest number of missing persons cases at 2,133. But when you factor in their population, it averages to about 5.4 missing persons per 100,000 people. Which brings me to a, holy shit, for real? Side (laughs) note. Arizona has the second highest average of missing persons with 13 per 100,000 of the population. But the state with the highest average number? Alaska. Their average is 41.8 missing persons per 100,000. Whoa. So to that I say, Are you okay, Alaska? No. I mean, that is like California is five and you're 41. Like that just feels that number is, oh, that's concerning. I'm concerned about the people of Alaska. Yeah, absolutely. But since Kiera's case is in Chicago, I wanted to focus on Chicago numbers. Uh, African Americans represent about one third of the population of Chicago, and yet they make up about two thirds of the city's open missing persons cases. Another example of this shocking difference is that African American girls between the ages of 11 and 21 account for 25% of the open missing persons cases in Chicago, while Caucasian girls of the same age account for about 4%. And when it comes to missing women over the age of 21, African-American women outnumber Caucasian women 4 to 1. Wow. And these statistics are as shocking as the numbers of Chicago women of color who are murdered every year. In 2018, Annie Sweeney... And Ariana Figueroa, I'm so sorry, uh, reporters for the Chicago Tribune, built a database of homicides in Chicago beginning from 2001. They found 75 women who had been strangled or smothered with their bodies dumped in abandoned buildings or alleyways. Arrests were only made in one third of those cases. But the authorities have also noticed this terrifying trend of Black female victims, the FBI and Chicago Police Department created a task force in 2019 to investigate these cases and to specifically see if there is a link between the deaths of more than 50 women in Chicago. This started to make the public worry there might be a serial killer in the area, but after testing all available DNA evidence from 51 cases of unsolved murders of women, investigators found no connections between any of the cases. Uh, So the public's starting to get concerned, but it turns out there's no connection. There's just an insane amount of, you know, murderers, uh, which doesn't make you feel any better. But Bill HB 3932 was introduced on October 25th, 2019, calling for the formation of a legislative task force to look into the matter of missing and murdered Chicago women. The hope was the task force would examine and report on the systemic causes behind violence that Chicago women and girls experience. Some of the things the bill was meant to create is appropriate methods for tracking and collecting data on violence against Chicago women and girls, including data on those who are missing and murdered, uh, policies and institutions such as Uh, Policing, child welfare, medical examiner practices, other governmental practices that impact violence against Chicago women, uh, measures necessary to address and reduce violence against Chicago women, things like that. As of December 31st, 2020, the bill was listed as dead or failed. So they tried, but it just didn't work out. But September 1st, 2020, so, or sorry, September 1st, 2021, very up to date. Yes. Uh, The Cook County Sheriff's Department announced the Missing Persons Project with the hopes of getting new information in nearly 170 missing persons cases dating back to nineteen thirty. The project's main focus is mi- is missing persons cases that have gone unresolved for an extended period of time, and they're going to start with their focus specifically on missing women. And while Kiera Cole's case is included in that list, there is also the case of 56-year-old Viola Martin, who was last seen after a family gathering at Christmas in 2009, uh, Viola was Viola sorry uh, was said to be heading to her daughter's house but she never arrived. Her family reported her missing December 29th, 2009. The next day the police found her car parked illegally and abandoned. Viola worked at a local medical facility and didn't pick up her most recent paycheck, which led authorities to believe she did not walk away on her own. And the cases just continue to get heartbreaking especially when they're again is so little information that's provided publicly about these incidents. For the most part, the case files simply say the victim's name, their age, and the date they were last seen. Sometimes a photo is included, but that is not always the case. Like, there's 18-year-old Mariah Edwards, who was last seen September 2010. 16-year-old Nicole Shalonda... Johnson, who hasn't been seen or heard from since December 2002, 36-year-old Dorothy Faye Johnson, who's been missing since March 1995. There are just so many, it's hard to not mention them all. And I know people of all genders go missing, not just women. But since this particular case is about a missing woman, I chose to focus on missing women in my research. But the thought of anyone going missing, regardless as to their gender, is devastating to me. The idea of never knowing what happened to a loved one feels so incredibly unfair uh, to their family that I just can't even begin to imagine. Uh, And even though that feels like the perfect spot to segue to something else, there is one more case that I wanted to mention today because it is eerily similar to Kiera Cole's, although it happened in Baltimore, Maryland, as opposed to Chicago. Uh, the case is 22 year old Akia Shanta Eggleston, who was eight months pregnant at the time of her disappearance. Akia was reported missing after she didn't show up at her own baby shower. Oh. Baltimore Police Department say they suspected foul play in Akia's disappearance and released surveillance photos of her withdrawing money from a bank in downtown Baltimore on May 3rd, 2017. The public were quick to blame Akia's boyfriend and the father of her unborn child, who was also a childhood friend of Akia's stepfather uh, and has never spoken publicly about Akia or her disappearance. Mm. Police have not publicly released his name, but I've read that this particular individual has a current girlfriend who is the mother to at least two of his children and that both have been interviewed by police twice. Investigators have interviewed over 100 individuals, but have not named any suspects and have made no arrests in the case. The super helpful comment from Baltimore police about the case was, quote, this is a real whodunit.
1: Oh, God.
2: Akia's case remains unsolved. (sighs) But again, these are the kinds of things where... That's all the information you have. So on one hand, I understand if if this is literally all the police have, I understand the case of like, well, now what? Now, where do you go from here? But I don't know if that's everything they have. They don't tend to say everything that they have. Um, but before the new task force paid attention to the shocking amounts of crimes against black women, someone else paid attention was I apologize, I'm probably pronouncing this wrong. Azia Roberts, a youth leader from the Kenwood Oakland Community Organization, in 2018, Azia took to Facebook to share her idea of a march to protest the unsolved murder and missing persons cases involving Black women and girls. The march, which is now called We Walk for Her, celebrated its fourth year in 2021, and if that wasn't impressive enough, when the march first began, Azia, who organized all of it herself, was 13 years old. Stop. So I've never felt like a more lazy piece of shit 13 year old in my life. Wow. <laughs> because I'm fairly certain Super Mario Bros. 3 was where I was at when I was 13. I never once considered, you know, rallying for a good
1: cause. <laughs> I'm not going to let you talk that way about my friend and loved one. I think she was doing her best. I think think 13-year-old you was doing doing her best
2: best. just to... Doing her best just to get through it. Yes. Uh, We Walk for Her brings awareness to the vast number of murdered and missing persons cases, as well as discusses strategies that they would like to put in place to prevent more Black women from being harmed, as well as policies they would like to ensure detectives are more open about investigations with victims' families, which I think we all agree. Yes. Uh, one case that we walk for her is trying to keep in the spotlight is Kiera Coles. Kiera's story is also noticed by Chicago artist Damon Lamar Reed. Damon mentioned on his social media he was creating portraits of missing African-American women and girls to help raise awareness of their stories. Kiera was the first subject of the first portrait that Damon completed. Local filmmaker Latoya Flowers-Rudd and her brother reached out to Damon with their idea of doing a documentary about his work. The documentary follows Damon as he tells the story of missing women through portraiture. Uh, Kiara Coles will be one of several women featured on this upcoming documentary, which will be called Still Searching. They hope to have the film complete by 2023. Which is great and amazing. Unfortunately, it doesn't help me try to talk about it in 2020. Of course. But again, like 13-year-old me... Just doing my best. You're killing the game. You're killing the game. And like
1: 13-year-old me, I think still in love with Leonardo DiCaprio. Also hauling a giant saxophone around. Like, I feel like, you know, oh, she wasn't doing anything. She was doing some stuff.
2: (laughs) She was trying so hard to get noticed by boys who just didn't get
1: it. Didn't get it. And you know they what else? It. They get it now. They, yeah. And you know what else? <laughs> she was messaging me, l- writing letters to me, talking about the nose ring she, she wanted. And she wanted to dye her red hair black. That's what 13-year-old you was You're doing. You're right.
2: You're right. You're darn right. And I did do the dream. I did have my nose pierced um, very briefly. <laughs> and then months later... I was pregnant and found out I had to take that out uh, before I could give birth, um, and then it never went back in, and and I can't ever do it again because I now will forever remember. Like it, it, piercings can hurt, um, but now when I think of that particular piercing, I remember the moment I was in labor, and my doctor was like. Uh, this is, you've been here for hours. Nothing's happening. We've got to get this child out. We're going to have to do a C-section. And I was terrified and like, no, this is a terrible idea. And he's like, I'm so, so sorry. We've got to get that nose ring out. And at the time, it was one of those little studs. And so in between uh, contractions, I had to try and take it Out of my face because he tried to help me, but it didn't work. So I had to try and take it out. And I will always remember that specific level of pain of contractions and trying to take out a nose ring that you could normally do easily when you're of your right mind.
1: (laughs) My question is, why is that necessary for surgery? Like, why is it so important? uh, Well, to be blunt, uh, in case I
2: flatline. Oh, they need to. You know, in case, in case I die and they need to try and bring me back, I can't have any metal on my body. Oh, It's also before a surgery, you have to make sure you have no nail polish because if there's like a lack of oxygen in your blood or something, it'll show on your nails. So that can be a first sign for them. Doctors and nurses are going to come for me and I'm so sorry. These are the things I was told back then. Listen, that's your experience. uh, That's what I was told about, um... You had to make sure that those piercings were out for the sake of, like, if something were to go wrong, you know, then you gotta get, we, we have to, we can't have that in. And yeah, I took it out and never went back. Jeez. I also always dreamed about an eyebrow ring, but I'm also like, it's 40 too late. No, <laughs> I don't know. I, I also don't know if I, could do an eyebrow ring now I don't know where I'm at I'm currently mentally like really hyper focused on maybe a tattoo but I don't know we'll see yeah we'll see where I'm at I don't know I don't know 40 is creeping up and it's 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 starting to do some things (laughs) I get it I'll tell you I'll tell you I'm like oh you should get that tattoo while your skin still seems like supple and fresh don't (laughs) <laughs> Don't describe your own your own skin that way, please. I am unwell. You're great. So, uh, regarding Kiara Cole's case, I'm gonna butcher this person's name because I uh, it's got so many letters in it. Uh, Chicago Police Chief Gillamie? Gillamy. Gil- 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 will say, I don't know, uh, said that they had, quote, a minimum of two or three people of interest who were last seen with Kiera before she disappeared. And that, quote, we've narrowed down our group here to a personal associate of hers, a friend who was one of the last people to see her. So that brings us to the question of what theories are out there of what happened to Kiera. Quote. Yeah. One theory which was even speculated initially by one of Kira's sisters, is that Kira vanished on her own. Her sister said, quote, maybe something did happen where she was overcome with a lot. You know, when you're pregnant, you're emotional. I want to just say that she went somewhere and didn't tell anybody and that she'll just come home. And I think it's there's obviously the deep rooted. She just wants to believe she went somewhere because that means she's safe. And that she'll come home at some point. Of course, Her family initially questioned if Kiera was simply overwhelmed by the changes in her life. She had just moved to an apartment. She just found out she was pregnant. Um, Either one of those is a lot on its own. But for both to happen at the same time, it could take a toll on someone mentally. And is it possible that Kiera left of her own volition? Of course. Again, in the grand scheme of life. Anything is possible. Although I don't believe it's likely. Uh, For one thing, Kiera's family said that she worked so hard to get where she was and her goal had always been to have a family. So why once she was finally getting to where she wanted to be, would she just abandon it all? Also, her mother Karen said Kiera was so happy about the pregnancy. So why would she leave her prenatal vitamins behind? And better yet, Why would she leave behind her inhaler when she suffered from serious asthma? Mm. And at that time of year, the weather's turning, which is not going to help. There were comments about Kiera's wallet missing, but I have not heard whether or not any of her bank or credit cards have been used since her disappearance. I assume the police have checked this, but never said anything about it. I'm also making a lot of assumptions on things that they've done i know that they're a good police i will say that so i just assume that they have checked this but they're not telling people about right and if all that wasn't reason enough for me to believe that kiera would never walk away on her own i don't believe people just up and change their habits overnight karen said she spoke with kiera daily and that she was obsessed with social media especially snapchat To up and suddenly stop calling your mother and stop going on your accounts feels wildly unlikely. And I get it. I, I, I go through Instagram reels, I will wake up and next thing I know it's been an hour and a half and I, I don't know how I got there, but that's where I'm at. And so I, I know she, Kiera was more like, she loved taking pictures, um, And so I get, I'm just saying, I get the world of like, you love social media and you kind of can't stop. I just don't think one day it would suddenly be like, I'm just not going to bother. And yes, somebody can come for me and be like, you know what? Maybe she made new accounts and she's using accounts we don't know about. And I say, okay, but that also, I mean, again, in the grand scheme of things where everything is possible, Sure,
1: but it just seems... But why not reach back out to her family, to her mother that she was so close with? Like, it would require a very large conspiracy to justify that. A hundred percent.
2: Another theory is that someone else was responsible for Kiera's disappearance. But who? There are a few possibilities. Some believe uh, that Dan Perkins, the boyfriend of Kiera's mother Karen was involved in Kira's disappearance. Karen, of course, denies that Dan could possibly be involved. And so far, I have not found anything that even makes me suspicious of him. Um, I couldn't even seem to find where that theory specifically started. So I'm not 100%. I don't know if people were just like grasping at straws or not. Uh, It should be noted that Dan has not been questioned by police And has not been named a suspect either. Uh, Another possibility is a stranger was involved in Kiera's disappearance. Maybe she was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Maybe someone had been watching her. The world can be terrifying at best. And if nothing else, this job has taught me. Trust no No one. one. So it's more than possible that the suspect didn't know Kiera personally. But it's also possible that Kiera did know the suspect, which brings us to the moment that I foreshadowed earlier, the moment in time, dear listeners, that we need to talk about Kiera's long-term boyfriend, Joshua B. Simmons. I would like to note I refuse to call him Josh because that feels too informal and I don't trust this bitch at all. <laughs> Not much is known about Joshua, except that he was born in December 1988. We also know he had been in a relationship with Kiera for at least five years, and he was the father of her unborn baby. In 2014, Joshua started to work for the United States Postal Service, but it was said he was possibly on medical leave at the time of Kiera's disappearance. I could not confirm whether that was true, But what I can confirm is the USPS currently lists Joshua as a former employee. Oh. So I know he does not currently work there. Uh, Now, the thing about Joshua is that prior to his relationship with Kiara, he was dating or possibly married to a woman named Kiara Smith. And I know that's going to get really confusing. So I'm just going to refer to this woman as Smith. Yeah. Before we get too uh, confused by it. So some have said that Joshua and Smith were married, but I could not find a marriage license for them anywhere. That, of course, doesn't mean they weren't married, but I think they were possibly just dating. Now, Joshua and Smith had a daughter together and they raised a second daughter together that Joshua had with a third woman. Allegedly, this other woman gave Joshua full custody and just bailed on the kid, so Smith stepped up to help raise her. Whether this is true or not, I don't know. The name of that mother uh, is unknown. So around the time of Kiera's disappearance, Joshua's Facebook profile was fairly open and seemed to indicate that Smith was also pregnant. Oh. Because you see, dear listeners, it seems that Joshua was dating both Kiera and Smith at the same time. I don't know how much Kiera knew about the other relationship, but Kiera's mother said at one point Kiera and Smith got into a fight that got so heated that Kiera was banned from Smith's house. Now, I don't know if Joshua was actually dating Smith while he was with Kiera or not, but in April 2018, less than six months before Kiera's disappearance, Smith posted a photo of herself with Joshua where his hand is on her ass, which felt gross uh, since he was openly dating Kiera at the time. But Smith captioned the photo, quote, I know we not felons, but I definitely see you as my best friend, confidant and co-defender. Which I felt was an interesting way of putting yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to say this. I I said to my my husband when I saw the photo, I said, OK, run with me on this. You and I, we break up. You start dating somebody else. She's pregnant. He's like, okay. And I'm like, and then you and I come over for a visit. Are we going to oppose in a photo like this? And I showed him the photo and he went, absolutely not. (laughs) The photo is far too intimate for people who are not uh, most likely boning is what I'll say. Yeah. Uh, and I th- I guess, I mean, we can say maybe it was an old photo, but then why would she post it if he was clearly with someone else? Was it like a big F you to Kiera? I don't know. Um, I just think deep down, sketchy as hell. But the sketchy doesn't stop there, dear listeners. When Kiera first went missing, Joshua said, quote, me and the family have been looking and we are still looking. But here's the thing the family was looking, but no, the fuck, he wasn't. Kiera's family said not only did Joshua not help hand out flyers or participate in any searches or vigils for Kiera, he also stopped speaking with the family as soon as Kiera disappeared. And not only that, but police said Joshua refused to speak with them or cooperate. In any way, which I know we've talked about on the show before, but I did not know was a thing. I thought if the cops want to talk to you, you had no choice, but he refused and they made posters of his picture saying he was wanted for questioning regarding the Kiera Cole's missing persons case. The poster also said if anyone sees Joshua to quote, inform him that his statement is being demanded immediately. And I know what you're thinking. How can Joshua be so hard to find? Well, from what I've heard, allegedly, right after Kiara disappeared, Smith quit her government job and took the girls and Joshua and they moved out of state to Louisiana. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Which, again, sketchy. Someone claimed that Smith had once commented that if her boyfriend ever cheated on her he would have to kill the girl he cheated with in order to get back with Smith. I don't know how true that statement is, but to me, there is zero reason to move out of state so quickly unless you have something to hide. Yeah. Another claim I couldn't verify was that someone said that Joshua allegedly had Kiera's necklace, which they felt was proof that Joshua was responsible in some way. And I don't know if he is or not, but I know that something feels off about him in this situation. If the person I'm dating and going to have a child with goes missing, not only am I going to do everything humanly possible to help, I'm also not going to move out of state and act like it never happened. Yeah. But one thing I found that I'm very curious about, I found an email address um, that is a... That allegedly belongs to Kiera, and it's listed as K. Cole Simmons, Simmons being Joshua's last name. So then it feels like Kiera was way more invested in this relationship than Joshua was. And I know that I don't know either of them, but I'm basing this on the fact that he seemed to be openly dating and having children with multiple women at once. Allegedly. Yes. Yes. But my anger towards Joshua doesn't take away from how heartbreaking this case is. Kiera was only 26 years old, and just at the beginning of her life, she had prepared for her baby's arrival by securing a steady job and a new apartment. The lack of closure in a missing person's case is a level of pain I will never truly understand, especially when that person is your child. Kiera's mom, Karen Phillips, broke me. When during a radio interview, she said, quote, as a mother. Mm. Oh, no, I may use that phrase a lot. But in a case like this, I just cannot imagine Kiera's family, as well as the National Association of Letter Carriers and the United States Postal Inspection Service have all offered a reward totaling nearly $50,000 for information involving Kiera's case. As of July 2020, the Chicago police have listed Kiera's case as suspended, which basically means the investigators have exhausted all available evidence so the investigation can't be continued further at this time. But if they happen to get a new lead or some new evidence, the case can be reopened at any time. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm Christy Oxborough. Oh,
1: what a mess. What a mess. What a yes. mess.
2: And again, dear listeners, I say, I know you're like, this episode has been, you know, two hours long, and you've only been talking about Kiera for the last like 45 minutes, hour, whatever it is. But again, it's not because we don't want to. It's because there's only so many things I can bring up if that's all there is. Yeah. I mean,
1: and I think I would love nothing more than to have three hours worth of information I could share about. Listen, this. and I think that that's a that's an important point too. You know, I think that that's that's part that's all part of it is that there are the cases that get all, a lot of attention, and there are the cases that don't. And this is one that has been on people's minds because it is a name that has been out there. It was a name that that was we had heard. It was a name that was you know on people's minds enough to to vote it in again our 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 patrons poll for for that month. So it's one that people have heard about but but again the level of information investigation all of the above just doesn't match again mm. the fact that people are like no we know about this case. Okay, what do you got for us? And the answer is not a lot, which is yeah, yeah. heartbreaking because Look, I think, again, after 50 episodes, it's safe to say for anyone who knows us, if there was more information there, it, Christy would have found it. That's just the way it, it goes. And if there just isn't, there just isn't. And I think that this is a great opportunity for us to to show that it's like, look, this is a case that got the attention of our listeners. This is the case that got voted. Hey, we want to hear more about the Kira Coles case. We said Great. She goes to research it and goes. There's just nothing here. There's no more. It's been listed as a dead case or whatever the term was you just used. Um, suspended. Thank you very much. Yeah. Suspended case. Why? You know, like again, it's it's when I'm when I'm able to spend an hour talking about a, a new suspect in the jean benet Ramsey case, who is not a new suspect, and I I again, illustrate it right. all. I don't need to get back into all the reasons why this is not a new suspect. 25 years later, you know, it's just, and, and again, this is not a slight towards JonBenet or her loved ones whatsoever. As I said before, of course, we all want that, that case solved. That is a child that right. was killed in a horrific way. And I am not negating that whatsoever, but I also don't want to negate Kiera Cole's case either. Who is a pregnant woman who, as it sounds, had, you know, everything going for her at her life together has an interest from the from the, you know, greater world right now. Again, we're a we're an international podcast. And the fact that in the international community, the people that follow us on Patreon said this is the case we want to hear about. We offer four options. This one won that month and there's nothing. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a bigger this is a this is a bigger systemic issue that I think it's is a great opportunity to talk about again, is is that why isn't there more investigation? Is there more investigation that we just don't know about, that they're just keeping secret for whatever reason? And that could be. But listing it as a suspended case to me is like, well, then what? Have you just given up? Is it because there's nobody, not to quote, but to quote, nobody, no crime, T. Swift? You know, right. jokes aside, but it's like, is it one of those things, out of sight, out of mind, where it's like, until there's a body, we just can't deal with it. Is that the mindset? I don't know. Again, I'm I'm throwing shit at the wall right now to see what sticks because it's it's to your point, she was so young and and had her life mm-hmm. ahead of her, and again, was somebody who's who had everything in place. To me, the prenatals in the car like guts me alive because that's That's Mm -hmm. someone that has her shit together. And even, and I I am saying this with no former knowledge, but I am just saying like, anyone who is pregnant and who has her prenatal vitamins in her car, this is not a person, in my opinion, and we're going to get into our theories in a minute, but this is not a person, in my opinion, who's going to disappear who is not happy about this pregnancy, who is whatever. This is someone who, again, as I tried to approach the first half of this podcast, we'll stick to the facts. That's someone who wants to ensure the health of that baby. Mm -hmm. Right? You don't take prenatals for any other reason. Well, you can take them if you want, you know, your hair and nails, but that's a whole other thing. Jokes aside, uh, I'm, I make we make jokes when we're uncomfortable. We're basically Chandler Bings. Of course. Um, the the point being <laughs> is is that it's like yeah. this is not a woman who seemingly was overwhelmed, based on what we know, by this pregnancy to the point that she wants to run away. This is a person who has a right? great job. She gets a new apartment. She's got her prenatals. She's got her shit together. And that's something again when it when there's no other indications of other stuff going on. That, to me, is an indication. And I'll offer this. I was watching a true crime thing earlier today uh, with Sweet Spencer. And there was a moment, and it doesn't, and listen, this this is what I'll say. It doesn't matter what the case was. I can get into it later, whatever. But it doesn't matter what the case was, and I'll tell you why. A woman was shot and stabbed, ran into the street, someone found her, that person called 911 and said, I'm with a woman. She's been shot and stabbed. And the 911 operator said, and I quote, by who? Was it her husband? First words. And I turned to Spencer and I said, See, statistically speaking, and I'm not saying anything yet because we're going to get into our theories in yeah. a minute, but. Statistically speaking, that was that 911 operator's first line of defense. Shot by who? Her husband? She didn't even take a breath. And I offer that only as, and I know it's a bigger conversation, obviously, but the one thing that we, of course, know, I'm speculating, I'm alleging, don't come for me, don't file your lawsuits, please. But the one thing that we know is that in the case of, especially of women, domestic violence is a real thing. The number one, the first place people look is the romantic partner Mm -hmm. is of course. And, and, and I, I, I'm not suggesting that a woman can only have a male romantic partner whatsoever. The case in, in question I was speaking about was a different was in the past. It was also in the South of America, etc. um we're in a different time and place now. But but the point being is 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 that it was was this perpetrated by a male partner in a domestic domestic violence situation was the first question asked with no other context. Ie, a woman ran into the street, she's been shot and stabbed. Was it her husband? That to me was such a microcosm of so much of what we hear in the true crime world. Um Which is tough to hear, too, because I think that in some ways it's easier to think there's a boogeyman, there's somebody who's out there. And believe me, the boogeyman exists. No one knows that more than me. I'm a serial killer buff. The boogeyman exists. Of course. But when you start to get into the statistics, it's like, so let's take a quick break. I'm going to get one more wine because I'm. I'm not drunk enough. We're going to have a a quick hit to the loo, and then we're going to get into our theories on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails.
3: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital.
0: Welcome back to this
1: episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Of course, we're talking about Kiera Coles. Now, what, of course, we were discussing before the break was the true unfortunate lack of information about this this case, um, which feels like it's related to potentially a lack of investigation. That's a speculation. We're trying not to get sued on this show, but... um, Look, if we're going to get into our theories, here's where I'm going to come from, straight up, because I didn't know anything about this case coming in. (sighs) And like I was alluding to before the break. Oftentimes in true crime, as we know, the first place investigators are going to look is the closest person to the victim. Right. And in many cases, that's a romantic partner. Um, and in this case, you know, knowing that Kiera's partner, Joshua, we don't give the short, the the short, Joshua, um, perhaps was married to someone else at the same time. Again, the exact nature of what their relationship was is speculative, but the fact that it does appear that he was dating two people at the same time, both women potentially being pregnant at the same time. Obviously, the comment that you found about, like, this this potential other woman, I use that term not with any connotation, but just for a descriptor, the fact that she sure. made a comment about, like, well, if you cheated, you'd have to kill the other woman, and then the other woman being Kira does, of course, go missing. I know, And then knowing that Joshua did not help in the search for Kira, the fact also that he and... Smith, again, the other woman, no connotation, moved to Louisiana yeah. right after Kiera went missing. It just feels, it just feels again like sometimes the simplest answer is true. And sometimes it feels like what would the motive be? Well, I mean... There's a huge motive if somebody has been secretly dating two people and has not been telling each of those people that the other woman exists, that feels like a motive to me. Um, and then both of them being pregnant at the same time, that feels like a motive to me. And listen, I know you could say to me that I'm not being fair, that there's no other evidence, et cetera, but yeah, there is no other other evidence. And if there is other evidence, we'd love to talk about it on the show. We would love to dissect it in every which way from Tuesday it would be, a uh, you know, happily. But there isn't. We're going by what we have, what we know. And based on what we have and what we know, it's to me, it's like it just feels like. If, again, I was to speculate where I would look as a detective, it would probably be there. That's where I'm at. What do you think? Mhm. Oh, well I
2: I've written something down and I'd like to it hear says. it. <laughs> I was I was in my own my own world and this is what we got. So, a packed lunch was found in Kiara's car, which makes me feel like she was going to work and was stopped before she could move the vehicle. I think she was getting ready to go when she saw someone she knew she got out of the car and then was potentially forced into another vehicle i think someone else called in sick claiming to be her um to buy themselves more time before people would notice that she was missing and yes i think her boyfriend and possibly his ex or current or whatever we're calling smith were in on it to leave town so quickly after kiera goes missing feels just Awfully incriminating to me. And why didn't Joshua help with any searches or cooperate with the police? He doesn't have a criminal record that I could find, so he shouldn't have anything to hide. You would think he'd care about the woman that he was in a long term relationship with. Again, at least five years from what I've seen. Or at the very least, if not her, what about his baby that she's carrying? It's just wild to me the police can't force him to talk to them, especially when he is the main person who seems to have a motive. He had kids with his ex, and from the sounds of it, the ex being pregnant, maybe two pregnant women at the same time caused a complication he did not want to deal with. Or maybe Kiara and Smith got into another fight and there was an accident. Smith was under the impression Joshua would do anything for her. Maybe he covered up what happens that Kiera, or what happened to Kiera in order to spare the mother of his children? I am just speculating, but we have such little information to go off of. I just I will never believe that those two weren't involved in some way until it is proven otherwise. Basically is what I'm saying. Uh, basically, at the end of the day, um, I think, as per usual, Uh, I'm, I agree with you. I just, there is something so off about the whole thing. Like again, he should be like in front of news cameras, like, oh my God, have you seen her? Please bring her back. He should be like going door to door. He should be handing out flyers. He should be doing all kinds of things, especially immediately to, you know, find her. Whereas his reaction was just like, nah.
1: And then he's not even talking to the family anymore and it also feels odd to me that the police have not jumped on that harder yeah like why are you not jumping on it harder that he does not feel kind of interested in any way in this case and moved away and all of those kinds of things like to me those are huge giveaways of at least something warranting further investigation. And perhaps they were, and they feel that he's not a a suspect. That's possible. We don't know because again, so little about this case has even come forward. Um, But to me again, like that, if, if you're looking for any suspect and there doesn't seem to be any other suspects, that would be a great place to start. The father of the child, who's also fathering, you know, another unborn child at the exact same time with another woman who picks up and leaves shortly after the death and doesn't seem to really be concerned with the disappearance of Kiera, I'd start there. That would be definitely where I would start and trying to unpack that. What is his connection to Kiera? What did their relationship look with, look like, all of the above? It does seem odd to me and very interesting that there was that apparent um, ATM footage of her giving him money. What is that about? And then the connection, yeah. of course, to that other case you pointed out. It's like, that's an interesting connection. Yeah. Why are these pregnant women giving these gentlemen hundreds of dollars? For what and for why? You know? Great question. Especially in the case of Kiera, where we definitely are are at least under the impression that he was the father. That seems like it was confirmed. Why is she giving him money when he apparently also has just as good a job as she does? If they're both working for the USPS, you know what I'm saying? Like, why is she having to support him when she's getting a new apartment? She is, you know... Preparing for this baby. Like, why is she giving him $400? That feels like a clue to yeah. me. I mean, it.
2: I did hear that he was potentially on medical leave at the time. And if that's true, is it possible that he was like, can you loan me money? I have rent coming out or I have something. And she was like, yeah, because they've been together for multiple years and she seemed to care about him whether he responds in kind or not has yet to be seen but yeah i i don't know like i can't it's weird to think i want to know exactly when that footage was found i i don't know what i would do with it but i'd like to see it yeah i want to cuz i want to see the mannerism in it is she annoyed that she's doing this like, I just, because you can tell so much in body language, how it's going. And also, they went to a nearby ATM in separate vehicles? That's weird, too. And then they, what, just went separate ways after that? Or, but again, was that the day she was last seen? Is that why their police say her la- the last day she was seen was October 2nd? Because they saw the footage? from this atm on that day?
1: I mean that I that makes sense, but I think and I I agree with you. I think that that's all very relevant again to me regardless of the day. I my question is just what was that money for? So you go to the atm together in separate cars. She gives you $400 and you part ways? That feels odd to me. That's a that's a pretty yeah. That's a significant amount, a significant enough amount of money to me Yes, that I don't think it's meaningless. No. If he was giving her that money, you could go, oh, okay. He's the father of this unborn child. He's contributing in whatever way. She's got, you know, her apartment situation. Maybe he wants to contribute in whatever way, but like, Her giving him that money, and I know many could say, Lauren, why are you fixated on that? Maybe she owed him or whatever. I don't know. That to me, like, it just rubs me weird. It just doesn't Mm -hmm. seem like a common thing that would happen for that dynamic. And I, you know, it's hard for me to speculate further, again, just because we have such small facts to go on. Because, of course, I go, you know, well, what's the bigger story there? Like, what is what is, – where is that money going? What is he using that money for? How did he ask for it? And then it's, you know, my brain wants to concoct something
2: mm-hmm.
1: of a Lifetime movie, but I won't because that's not helpful and not realistic. But sure. it's, it's again, to me – the again, when you get down to the black and white of it, the bare bones, I personally – just think it's odd for a potential father of an unborn child to take the mother of of that same unborn child to an ATM and make that mother give him $400, and then she goes missing within a, either a day or a week of that time. That's a red flag. It just feels unsettling. Yeah. It feels uh, abnormal. Again, that's where I would start. And then when you add in the fact, again, that when you statistically start to talk about it, it's like. We start at the romantic partner for a reason. It just feels, you know, Mm -hmm. well, listen, I hope more than anything that there can be some sort of light shone on this case, that some sort of new information can come out I love the We Walk for Her initiative. I think that's amazing. I think it's it's amazing that it's by a young person. That's so awesome. Um, And again, I hope that all of it, and and hopefully this podcast, hopefully it can all lead to some bigger questions being answered or at least some more information being released publicly because it just feels impossible to me that this kind of case that is recent um, just kind of be left in the ether. But then when I, mm-hmm. as soon as I say that, I think about the facts that you pointed out, which are, but look at all of the cases, especially in that area that are just left in the ether, which of, of similar situations. And it's so overwhelming. It's, um, it, it's a, obviously an epidemic worldwide, certainly in this country as well. And uh, listen, it's 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 hard to know what to do because it feels like, you know, you want action items. I feel like for a lot of people, they want action items. Well, what can we do? What's, what are the changes that can be made? And it's tough because you're dealing with a legal system. You're dealing with you know? a police system that don't take kindly necessarily to armchair detectives, podcast detectives, citizens putting their two cents out there into the world and trying to access different pieces of information. But... Um, My hope at least is that all of us can stay vigilant and and talk about cases like this and spread awareness and the hopes that that change can be made because it just feels overwhelming to think that so many vibrant, amazing young people. But again, like you said, in the case, in this case, specifically young women, the cases just kind of happen and float by and that's it. And that just feels impossible Feels impossible to accept in some ways. A hundred percent. It's just the fact that it keeps
2: happening time and time again, the fact that, you know, like it people are aware that this is a problem to the point where they tried to pass a bill to have a task force made specifically to look into this and why it happens and how to prevent it. And whoever decided that bill was going to be a thing had the best of intentions. And wherever that bill went just could not be completed. And so, again, it's people are, there are people that are trying. It's just there are not, not everybody is trying, is the point. Again, I know that there are good police. And I'm not saying the police in this didn't do their jobs. I don't know what they
1: know. But I would like to. (laughs) Absolutely. 100%. Listen, Christy Oxborough, uh, you did a great job as always. I I am so um, in awe of your abilities and the fact that even in a situation where it felt like you couldn't find very much information. You still managed to find all the information. So kudos to you because I think it's an impressive feat.
2: You are too kind. Nah,
1: nah. Like we said earlier in this episode, here's to the next fifty. My gosh, what a fun, exciting milestone to pass! Couldn't do it with anyone. Uh, anyone I love more? That's the other truth.
2: This is this is the only way this works. 100%.
1: Now, if you haven't already given us a follow, give us a follow! Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, at True Crime and Cocktails, Twitter, at Not Detectives, on Patreon, patreon.com slash True Crime and Cocktails. So much fun. Uh, we love doing it so much, and we appreciate all of you for all of your support on any and all of those platforms. Christy, do you want to tell the people about next week next week's episode? Oh.
2: Well, next the thing about next week... Is the people will hear the name and go, that's not true crime. And to that I say, just wait. (laughs) So to that I say, on the next
1: True Crime and Cocktails, Jerry Lee Lewis. I can't wait to hear all about it. I know about him, but not about how it connects to true crime. And I... Mm -hmm never doubt you, so I cannot wait. Um, thank you all so much for listening. We're so glad that you're here with us. We're so glad to have hit 50 episodes and to embark on the next chapter. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people?
2: In honor of our 50th episode. Goodnight, people. Goodnight, night.
3: by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com thrill or text thrill to 500-500.